Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mom Looks. I'm Mahin and I'm joined today by my co-host Mort and Moga. And today in studio we welcome the rap artist KM, formerly known by his former name Khalid M, who we addressed as Khalid today. So Khalid, assalamu alaikum. Uh, welcome to the Mad Mom Looks. Wa alaikum salam, rahmatullah. I'm happy to be here, man. Thank you for having me. So Khalid, what's going on? We caught up a couple of weeks ago and you were sure. down at uh, South South by Southwest, was it? Yes. You know, I, I remember we were talking off line. I've heard of this thing before, but I thought it was like a Southwest Airlines <laughs> convention. <laughs> So so, what what yeah. took you down? What's what's that about? What took you down there? Um, South by Southwest is uh, one of the bigger music festivals. Um, every March in Austin, Texas, uh, music is there's more than two thousand acts that play from really big people like whatever you know Lana Del Rey or Jay Z or whoever down to like you know independent up and coming bands. Um, it's also a huge tech convention, video game convention, comedy, film. I mean, it's just like a really large number of people in Austin every year uh, for that month. So we were blessed to be invited to headline the show there, uh, and it went really well. How That's the that? first time you were out there? I went once unofficially. There's a lot of unofficial artists that go. Um, so I've been there a few years ago unofficially, but this was my first official uh, South by Southwest artist moment. Right. And now I remember when you were down there, you you'd mentioned you were on the Jeremy Scahill podcast. He records down in Austin? No, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the podcast called Intercepted. It's one of my favorite podcasts out. Um, he doesn't record live usually there and based in New York, but iHeartMedia was doing a special thing just for South by Southwest where they were taking popular podcasts and just for that day filming them in front of a live audience, like back to back. Like we did Intercepted, then they had whatever podcast next. Um, so that was a really cool experience. It was two yeah. guests. You had Edward Snowden. Yeah, it was me and Edward Snowden. So it was really interesting. He was obviously he couldn't physically be there, but he was on a video screen live. We were talking to him. He's really funny. And was witty. he rapping too? No, he wasn't <laughs> rapping. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he could though. He's really <laughs> eloquent. Edward Snowden was dropping bars. <laughs> I do notice the quality though. It didn't sound like he was in Russia. Right? Yeah, it sounded like he was right there. His <laughs> yeah. quality was on. Their quality was on. Point, quality though. was crazy. I mean, he was just right there in the room. It was it was pretty cool, man, to see him like that. Yeah. So talk to. So you were you mentioned on that podcast the drama with TSA, the transportory was that transportation security agency? Is that what they're called? I don't know what they stand for. Actually, I just know TSA. I never actually thought about what the acronyms for. <laughs> I just wanted the folks that like give you give you a lot of shit. Yeah, I mean it wasn't crap at the airport. It wasn't for me. It wasn't just necessarily TSA. Um, it's kind of above TSA. TSA just kind of does their job, and if they see a specific designation on your boarding pass, and they have to you know go through protocol. Um, I had no fly list for a while. I was on no fly list. After that, I was relegated to Quad S, which stands for Secondary Security Selectee Status. Yeah, I had that for four years. Yeah, so that's a designation yeah, that's I had deemed that for like eight years. So, yeah, how do you make, how do you make the no fly list? Uh, they're really secretive about it. I mean, one of the reasons is being uh, challenged in court and why a lot of people are suing the government and winning their cases is because with the no fly list, there's no charges and there's no accusations, so there's really no mechanism to prove your innocence. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are have been suing the FBI, suing Homeland Security and saying, listen, if you're going to put me on this list, you got to at least provide reasonings why. And usually when that happens, 
um, the cases never go to trial, and they just end up taking the person off the list. But it's not random, though. It's uh... yeah, it's not. It's not like random. It's definitely. It's not like just being. You know, if you're a Muslim, you might get searched. Or I know I've never been able to check in online. A lot of Muslims can't check yeah, in online and stuff like that. So it's not really that. It's, it's a specific designation to somebody who's deemed a potential threat. I'm air quoting potential threat to national security. <laughs> but they cast a really, really wide net. Um, and it obviously when you make a living traveling as I did, it makes it really hard to be able to make a living. So Quades was part of it, perpetual surveillance and harassment by FBI detainments, uh, prison time in and out, uh, for about three years, basically from Labor Day weekend, 2013 up until, um, 2016. So prison time, they just, just in and out. So they'd start using this tactic. Um, it got to a point where my lawyer was like, you know, because in the beginning, I'm just like, yo, I have nothing to hide. Come in the house. Let's talk. Mm -hmm. It's all good. You know, maybe they're trying to clear up something. After a while, um, going through it, you know, my lawyer advised me, like, listen, just don't talk to these people. They know everything. They're not coming to really learn. They have somebody in their crosshairs and everything they learn from that point on is only to get evidence to support their cause. It's kind of like, I don't know if y'all listen to serial podcast mm -hmm. or if you know how a trial works, a prosecutor's job is just to put the person in jail, period. Yep. They're not going to mid-trial be like, you know what? I think I've heard enough. I don't think he did it. They're just trying to go for the kill. And um, so for them, she's like, just don't let them in your house. Just give them my card. Be polite. Um, because for FBI agent, anything can be evidence. If they go in your house and see a prayer rug, that could be evidence. There was a guy I knew that... uh when I lived in Kentucky, the FBI was on him really hard. And they used to ask his wife, like, when you guys watch TV and there's sex scenes or nudity, does he change the channel or does he keep watching? You know, and they're like base decisions off of that kind of stuff. You know, I heard a lot about like that. I don't have anything to hide mentalities mm -hmm. is, is, is the wrong mentality to have. Actually, it's funny because Eric, uh, uh, Edward Snowden, actually. Yeah. He's what he talks about. It. He's like, just because you feel like you don't have something to hide. It's a, he said. Um, in one of the interviews, you know, um, he was on TED Talks uh, sure. recently, and then the way he comes on, he's like, it's a robot screen, so he's he just comes yeah. on because um, he can't physically be here. And so he says, he said, just because he said there's so many laws and rules here in America that at any given point, you don't know what you're breaking. He's like, even the lawyers and the people don't know sure. uh, the majority of the laws. And so that mentality you have, oh, I have nothing to hide. Here's everything. It's it's the raw mentality. Yeah. And I, you know, I grew up thinking that way. I had a really close friend of mine in college who we had suspected worked for intelligence for a while. And I just thought he was a good guy. And I was blessed, alhamdulillah, to grow up around like maybe four or five best friends who are not Muslim. And every one of them, except for one, ended up taking their shahada at one point in time. So with oh, this nice. guy, I was like, yo, he's just going to see Islam for the inside. And he's going to learn and blah, blah, blah. And like with my lawyer, she's like, you just, it's not about that. You know, when they have somebody in the crosshairs, it's about them for accomplishing them it's all their about goal. information gathering. Yeah. So, so oh, so the prison time. Yeah. So yeah. I never answered the question, but the prison time. What they started doing after I stopped talking, I was like, just here's my lawyer's card, talk to my lawyer. They would come back and be like, oh, well, we have a warrant for you for some traffic ticket in 2006 or something. And I would have just gone through a background check for something else. I'm like, yo, what do you mean? I didn't have a warrant a week ago. And this warrant was really just an in inconvenience, like an intimidation factor. So they'd make a big scene of it, handcuff me outside the house, call in a big police paddy wagon that all the neighbors can see. And I'd go to jail. 
um, four or five hours till processing's done. I'd have a court date the next day. I go to court. Judge calls my name. And he'll just be like, "Case dismissed." It's like nothing Wait, there. So it's just an inconvenience. It, was it prison or was it county jail? No jail, just jail. Okay. Sorry, right, yeah. I, I use the terms interchangeably, although okay. I mean jail. Yeah, I'm just, just wondering. Yeah, yeah case, sorry. Yeah. So no, no extended time. I'm just meaning mess up your day. Go for right. a few hours. You have to go to court the next day, and there's nothing there. It's just like an intimidation factor, yep. you know, to get you to cooperate. So what do you think started all that for you? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to speculate. I mean, I spent a lot of nights, um, speculating. It doesn't really get you anywhere. My music, I don't think is music related. My music's mostly like connecting communities and building bridges. There were a lot of Libyan Americans that fell under those lists and similar lists around the time of the revolution. But most, I had a lot of friends who were on the list some of them were in Libya during the revolution or after doing like aid or human rights or logistics. So the FBI may have suspected that they were fighting or doing something. But I, was, I went to Libya after the revolution was over. Um, it could be anything. Like say I was still on the list and then they see me uh, with MOGA in a Facebook picture. Uh, they maybe just throw, Mayan, right? <laughs> that ain't a good look. <laughs> maybe they just throw MOGA on, you know? Yeah, so, sure. I mean, sometimes we, they do it just by the country you're from. Yeah. Who, you know, who knows? I mean, circle. it could be a Facebook friend. Yeah. It could be someone you just like said yeah. hi to. Yeah. I mean, it could it be somebody depends. telling them something. Maybe somebody was pressing them and that person actually had some stuff. They could have got trouble before. And sometimes people names. name drop. They just exactly. want to get out of, they're out of trouble. Like, oh, I think that guy might know something. Absolutely. Somebody. Like the guy might just name drop to get out of his situation. So, you know, that's the thing. People be like, oh, well, what did you do? And it's a really funny question because I don't have an answer for it. And like I said, there's no charges. There's no accusations. So I don't have a mechanism to prove yeah, see, I, I was I was never on a no-fly list, but for like eight years, I had that quadruple S. How yeah, you, and the quad you get off? Well, I mean, I'll be honest. So when I was living in Dubai for a couple of years in Dubai... Wait, hold up. What's a quadruple S? I mean, like it's a special what? security uh-huh. screening something. I don't know. And a ticket. When you get an airline ticket, uh-huh. they put four S's on your ticket. Yeah. And when you get it, when you go in there for like when they, when you go in the like to pass the, to into the security line, uh-huh. they nab you and they take you separately. You have and to see they, a supervisor. And they do the bomb sniffing. And I remember one time I got so mad because it, it happened like where they, they took me. And then I got to the gate, and they walk you to the gate. Like, you can't walk by yourself. You got to walk with them to the gate to make sure you get there. So I was at the gate, and the guy comes back. They come back. I was about to board the plane. He comes back. goes, hey! Like, this guy keeps running <laughs> after me. I'm like, I don't know if he's coming after me because I, I made it there safe, right? But like, oh, you, 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 you. I'm like, oh, secondary screening, whatever. Oh, I'm like, okay. You didn't go through the screening problem. I'm like, yeah, I did. The guy just walked me over here. So they brought me all the way back to the thing, and I got so mad at that point, I just dropped my pants. Like, I'm like, no, if you want to search me, I just drop my pants on everybody. Like, so you can't do that. I'm like, I'm not naked. You just want to see me, right? I mean, so whatever, you know, check me out. I have nothing yeah. on me, you know? But the point is, is that what happens is they, they, they mark you for special screening. Now they say it's random, but it's not random. Well, like, Quad you know, S isn't random. That's yeah. like on your boarding pass. Yeah, they say it's all, oh, you're, you're there. And so actually when you're even, like, like he said, you can't, um, check in online. So when you go to the ticketing desk, that's when they call us, they radio somebody over, like, hey, hey, this guy's coming to check in, right? So for me, um, I remember when I came back from Dubai, I was living there for two years and I came back and I had been all over Africa. I've been all over Africa. I went all over to the Middle East. I was all around for the business purpose. And so I came back and there were two guys sitting right when I got off the plane, I got right off the hangar and they were just waiting for me. Like they were like, Hey, so you got to come with us. I said, okay, here we go. Right. So, but the funny thing was though, is that they didn't do me that bad though. But for, for like seven hours, I was sitting in this room and it took everything of mine. Right, everything of mine, even my iPhone, I had like two percent battery left, and I got that stuff back, 
with like, I got my phone back with like 95% battery, right? So I told the guy, I said, hey, how come my phone has charge in it, you know? He said, well, your passport had so many flags in the countries you visited that we had to verify from your gyro on your phone that you went to these places, you didn't go anywhere else. And so they were looking at it, and I told them, hey, look, this is the business that I have. This is what I do. So I handed over some documents, and I said, this is what I what I do for a living. And at that point, after that, um, next time I flew, uh, I was I, I didn't have the S on my thing. And I, I mean, the first time in like eight years, I flew like a domestic flight without any problem. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I kind of missed it, though, because domestically, it's cool because you get to expedite the line. You just go forward, right? You have to wait in line. <laughs> I can get the 30 minutes for the flight and get there. But international was a bit more, right? Yeah, but, but I, I was telling somebody, I was like, there was, I got to a point where it was so depressing mentally that I, I tried to just treat it in my head like I was VIP. So long line of security. <laughs> That's what I and did. I just walked to the front and be like, yo, I have to see a supervisor because yeah. I know you got to see a supervisor. Right. Exactly. And they do make you feel a little special because at the gate, they'll call like, they'll be like, zone one, zone two, passenger, call it Ahmed. You get your yeah. name called. Yeah. So I try to make it seem like yeah. I'm a celebrity. But then, I mean, so internationally, it was a bit more. Like, they, they trouble you a little bit more. But um, but then, you know, I, I noticed that I wasn't on the triple S, or quadruple S, and I'm like, oh, this sucks, man. I gotta wait through the whole line. I gotta be, you know, domestically. <laughs> but now it's cool about it. But so, it makes up, because you gotta go up early. I mean, you gotta go super early. I mean, you get there... Like he said, they call somebody on the phone. You don't know how long they're going to have have you on you call You don't know. Either. You got to go. So that phone call in the beginning at the ticket agent may be 10 minutes. It might be 45 minutes. Then you get to security. You, they, you have to see a supervisor. The supervisor, I had to stop taking carry-ons. I used to take my merch and my carry-on because they're going through every single item and wiping it with that bomb stuff, everyone, and arbitrarily throwing stuff out. I might have 50 CDs and 25 get thrown out and 25 are good. Even now, I have a habit of just checking everything in. I don't yeah. know nothing I'm going to go through. They go through my notebook, like a little rhyme book or something. They'd read every line, go through the phone. You know, and then once you get to the gate, they're checking you again and sometimes interrogating you again. And I've gone through that whole process, passed it all. I had a, I had a flight from Chicago to Lexington, Kentucky, connecting in Detroit. I made it on the plane in Detroit. Uh, five minutes later, a woman comes up, asks me for my ID, give it to her. She comes back and she's like, I'm sorry, sir. You have to get off the flight. Like you cannot fly. I got kicked off a flight, no refund, no explanation, and in a connecting city. Alhamdulillah, like I know people there, so I was good. But what if I did it? I'm in a random city that wasn't my destination city or where I left from, and I got pulled off an airplane after already going through all of the travel requirements. Did you have any troubles like coming from overseas back in? Because for me, what I noticed was, you know, in any country, especially the Arab countries coming back in, like over there, they their security coming into America is like double here. Like I remember I was in Amman, I was in Jordan, I was coming in. They have a separate wing where once you get in there, like four checkpoints. And once you get in there, you can't leave. Yeah. Even you got to use the bathroom, you got to come back through the whole thing all over again. Yeah. And I remember I had an e-cigarette with me, right? He thought it was a literal bomb, dude. Like he was like, yo, what is that? I'm like, it's an e-cigarette, dude. He's like, oh, yeah. okay, yalla, it should have. Yeah, like, I, I had... Oh. Yeah, okay. I had trouble before, but to be honest, I never left. During that point, I never left. I used to tour overseas a lot. Like, the UK is, like, my biggest fan base and stuff. And my lawyer was like, yo, don't leave the country. This was before when I could still fly and the quad S was going on. She's like, don't leave the country because you're not guaranteed re-entry. Even though I'm born and raised in America, but a lot of people don't know is that entry is still up to the discretion of the CPP agent, you know, and Homeland Security. So they can refuse entry to anybody. It doesn't matter if you're a citizen or not. So yeah. Mort said a little earlier that he's he he doesn't have that on. I'm done with it now. I'm good. What about you? 
No, I'm good. Alhamdulillah. How'd you get it off? Because yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we, so we worked on it for three years. Gone, my lawyer. Like, you don't know sometimes. Yeah. Because yeah. like, if it was your music, I mean, you still rap. I mean, you haven't given that up. Um, well, I, actually, I disappeared. Like, I didn't even do a social media tweet for two and a half years. Not oh, really? a tweet, Instagram, nothing. My lawyer's like, you have to just disappear. I didn't release anything. But like I said, it's all speculation. We don't know if it's music mm -hmm. anyway. But we, we, I know we worked on it for a long time. But they're not holding your hand through this stuff. Even no fly list, they don't tell you. You don't get a letter that says you're on the no fly yeah. list. Your lawyer just looks at the symptoms like, oh, you're not able to fly. You're no fly list. Like the airport employees are not allowed to say you're on the no fly list. They'll be like, sorry, sir, you cannot get on this flight. But they can't tell you anything else. Like when I got put off the plane, even though I had just flown from Chicago to Detroit, she's just like, I'm sorry. Like you can't fly. That's it. That's the end of the conversation. So how are you, how are you able to catch that first flight though? If you were, on I don't know. I don't know if that was no fly list. If that was like some security thing, I have no idea. Each, like I don't have any information. Has their own organization or, or the, I mean that division that looks into the flights. So they'll be like, okay, yeah. this person looks funny. So we think he fits the, so they'll pull him off. It's at this, the discretion of the, yeah. and who knows, actor. you know, when I was in Detroit, I remember going through security and some Arab lady came out the back. She's like, Khalid, Khalid, Khalid. I'm like, Hey, how you doing? She's like, what did you do? I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you're on Quad S. What did you do? I was like, I didn't do anything. And she goes, well, have you been overseas? I was like, yeah. She's like, well, you definitely know somebody who's connected. And I was like, it's just kind of ignorant. She didn't even ask me where overseas. I could have just been in Fiji. She just said, have you been overseas? Like, have I been in any country anywhere? A lot of Americans have left America before. Like, I'm not a trendsetter. You know what I'm saying? You could have been in the Bahamas. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was the end of that. It was like, just really ignorant. Some, so uh, now, alhamdulillah, you're good now, right? Alhamdulillah. As far yeah. as I know, I have not attempted to leave the country yet and come back. Uh, but I'm going to do that. I'm not going to let this hold me back. But as far as domestically, no quad S, no nothing. Like, yeah, mashallah. You know. So, I had it for four years. So, I got, I got the story for you. Yeah. So I, it popped up for me in the summer of 2011. I'm going to California. My yeah. wife and I are going to take a week long vacation. C couldn't check it online. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know what Quad S was. And I started seeing it every flight you're getting this thing. And that's when I noticed the pattern. There's a Quad S. Then you get that TSA redress number, which is total BS. Did you try that too? The yeah. TSA redress number? Yeah. What is redress that? What can't is that? do nothing for Quad S. It's basically like, you know, if you have issues with TSA, if you want to file a complaint, you can like fill this thing out. And then they send you this number, and then when you're supposed to uh, book your flight, you use this number. It's supposed to like get you off this random, like this random quad S screening. Because obviously you're being singled out, right? Mm -hmm. If it's every flight for like four years, I had one or more had eight years. I have a friend that told me for seven years. He had it for seven years. Um, it's not random at the, at this point in time, right? International, domestic. I'm glad I never missed a flight. I was really close to missing a work flight once. Like I cleared the gate in 30 seconds because they had me on call on hold at the gate for like 45 minutes. So long story short is I go to Hudge in 2015 and my boy, he had went to Hudge before. He had it for seven years. Say, listen, man, like you need, this needs to be on your Dawah list. When you go to Arafah, you need to like, you know, pump this Dawah out hard like, to get off and just have Yaqeen in it. Have like certainty that Allah is going to grant it to you. And even if it doesn't happen for you, know that some shortcoming of you don't like try to like blame Allah for it, right? So like real story. So 2015, I, you know, I go to Hajj. I'm like at Arafah. I'm like making, I'm, I'm making Dawah for this Quad S stuff. Make it Tawaf in Mecca, you know, in, in Medina, wherever I'm at. Anytime I get a chance to make Dawah, I'm making Dawah for getting off this freaking Quad S list. And so on my way back, um, and my friend, he was able to get off on the way back. They they stopped them on the way back, and they were like, oh, by the way, we don't know why you're on this list. For me, I just saw the quad pop back up again. I, honestly, I was a little, like, down. I was like, all right, well, it is what it is. 
you know, went through the special screening and all that stuff. I end up um, then booking a flight to go to Columbus, Ohio, uh, where I'm from, like a couple months later, like in November. And I get to the airport like three hours early, even though I'm not even checking bags, just because you don't know how long right. you're going to get held up by this freaking call. And I go to the kiosk and it's like, I always, what I would always do is go to the kiosk, put my stuff in, and then the agent would get alerted like, you can't print out the boarding right, pass. Right, right. So this no time, kiosk. the boarding pass just spit right back out. And I look at it, and there's like no S's on it. Isn't that a great feeling? I felt so relieved. Like I was about to cry because like to me. and like the thing is, it was just like, it, but it, but for me, there was like no, pro- there was no interview, there was no process where they were like, oh, you were mistaken, you know. And the only thing I could, and I tried to like, vis- I was like, okay, what could have happened? So the day before, ain't no terrorists going to Columbus, Ohio, dog. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, but peep this, dude. Like the day before, I that flight on Thursday, they busted four dudes who were affiliated with Ohio State in the, in the early 2000s, in the mid 2000s. Uh. For funding money to uh, AAA. You got what I'm saying? So yeah. that was funny too because you know, here's what happened. One time when I came back though from out of the country, um, I had the feds come pay a little visit to me. And they came to the house and they wanted to talk to me. And they came, they come up with bogus things. Like one time they were like, hey, we know, you know, you're, you know, your family's of Yemeni background. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were like, okay, well, uh, hey, we know that you emailed Anwar Olaki like back in 2006. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't even know the dude's email address, dude. Like, I don't even know what you're talking it's about. It's probably like info at lucky.com. <laughs> yeah, they were like, and I'm like, uh, no, dude. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I was kind of, I'm like, I wish I did. I mean, he was kind of cool, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, at that time, his lectures were cool, you know. But man, y'all gonna get me right back on this list of <laughs> no, 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 quite no, no, I'm mean, on this like, list too, man. No, what man, I mean is like, who are you no, guys? No, no. At that time, what I mean is like, I'm talking about like the the, the lectures of like you know the lives of the prophet. That was cool for me. You know, the other stuff I don't know about. You know, I don't. Um, that's not my thing. I'm not worried about that. But I mean, he had some decent lectures before he got all radicalized, right? right? I mean, it happened, right? So I was listening to that. At that time in 2005 and six. that's when he was making those lectures. He wasn't radicalized at that time. So that's what I was saying. I'm like, yo, in 2006, even if I did, I mean, I didn't, but even if I did, that was when he was peaceful. He was cool. You know what I mean? Like, he was all right. You know what I mean? But they, but they, they, they throw things out there that are like completely... You know, just made up sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then they'll ask you about people like, hey, do you know this person? Do you know that person? And I'm like, dude, I really don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I really don't know about what you're talking about, dude. I'm like, look, uh, I just want to make money and like go to work and like, you know, chill and eat, dude. You know, it was like, <laughs> but it's funny because cause I, I read the whole ent- entire indictment for these four guys. I knew all these four guys, by the way. Because I was, the, the thing is, I was the Ohio State MSA president in 2005. And these dudes were all like on campus at that time. So they probably were like, well, you was the MSA president. And these dudes were at Ohio State at that time. Like, surely you're some, you know, we somebody at least look out for, right? And I remember I got even an email from Ohio State after. So I thought maybe, you know, okay, they just found the guys and, and, and the feds were so gracious enough to remove me from the list the next day. Like, really, that's, that's not happened. That's not what happened. I, I really believe Allah had a plan, had a, had a, like, a, had a hand in, you know, had a, had a definitely played a part in this sure. like more so than, like you know we say a lot plays upon everything but this is like direct i was like because like realistically speaking if these they, they arrested these dudes on a thursday the next day i flew they wouldn't have turned it around that quickly to all of a sudden take me off the list like they wouldn't why do they care yeah it's easier for them to just leave me on the list <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. no i'm man Allah works in, in in the way that he does and it's you know if you're patient you know, yeah, things. but that's yeah. the thing. I, you probably relate, man. Well, three, you know, three of us. Um, we don't take flying for granted anymore, right? It's just right. like it, it's it's such a blessing to just be able to go and go in the line like a normal person and get your check in yeah. online. 
Especially because for me, and it sounds like for you as well, like it's a career. Like I had to travel to make money and it got stolen away from me. And then once you're like, I was about to go on my biggest tour ever, like South Africa, Singapore, everywhere, a place I've never been. And like the plug got pulled, you know what I mean? And you can't just like book another domestic tour. It's like tours are booked so far in advance. Uh, so I'm like left stranded. That's literally like my means of income. And plus it's opportunity, right? Like you let down the promoters and they don't yeah. want to, you know, they might have a shot. Of a course, shot relationships, some and... some bridges burnt. Some people don't understand. Not to mention momentum. Like I literally had to disappear from the public eye for almost three years and I'm starting from scratch now. Yeah. All my momentum from before, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. Rolling Stone, documentary scene, and none of that stuff matters. It's irrelevant because it's been so long and so much has changed. I'm, I'm, I'm like a brand new artist starting from scratch. So do you think any of this might have had to do with the fact of your, like, your father's history like i don't we want to get into this a little bit i you know we didn't get a chance so i mean why don't you tell us a little bit about your father and, and the, yeah. the background behind that and how he came to america and all that sure stuff. i don't i don't think that just to say it from the top i don't think that it's relevant to that especially because america at that point was was okay with what my father's group was doing but um yeah so my father Allah um he was in jail from 73 in prison in Libya as a political prisoner he escaped in 77 he shared a jail cell with his father at one point who ended up being poisoned by the government um Gaddafi like you know a lot of people got this misconception like oh he was good for, uh, for a lot in the 70s then he just wanted more power but not almost immediately he was like throwing a lot of student groups and stuff in prison so he escaped jail on foot um made it to Tunisia eventually went to jail there because he didn't have any papers they passed him to Egypt he was in jail there for a little bit eventually got out um, and helped form this opposition movement. It was like the main international opposition movement to the Gaddafi's regime, which in the 80s did have like a military wing in Chad and stuff like that. Um, but they had support at that time. Um, and they bounced around for a long time. You know, the name that I know him by, that I knew him by, that my mom knew him by, that everybody that I know knew him by wasn't his birth name. It was a fake name that an alias that he took up that was like the equivalent of John Smith or something like that. Um, they bounced around, and in those days, in the 80s, Gaddafi was killing a lot of dissidents. Um, there's a pretty famous incident in the UK where a police officer from London named Yvonne Fletcher was murdered in some crossfire of some Gaddafi assassins trying to kill some dissidents. So eventually, they left North Africa. We were, we, we were in like Sudan and Algeria, Chad, places like that, and they made their way to the United States, which was a little bit further out of reach and safer, and they wanted to pick a place that was... Um, a nice place to raise your kids, but also a place, to be honest, without a lot of brown people. They didn't have to worry about who's a spy <laughs> and who wasn't. You know what I mean? Just like white and black. And uh, they picked Lexington, Kentucky, which is where I grew up and was like the pseudo headquarters. Um, when you say brown, movement. you mean Libyans or Daisies? Daisies. Oh, you just mean like well, just brown. Like Anybody who, because you know, Libya is really diverse. It's like Brazil. Like, we got people so dark, they make Akon look light skinned. And you got people that are like, <laughs> really light with green eyes and, so for and people who don't know Lib Libya is a country that's mixed between the Arabs the Berbers you have the Italian yeah I'm a say, you, you, got Tuareg, you got so Tabu. you have you have really dark skinned you know Libyans and you have really white like white white yeah, Libyans that's you know really I mean? mixed. so anybody could be a Libyan to you, you yeah anybody know. so they pretty much they don't know because somebody could say that they're from a country and really be Libyan or whatever so they just you know they just pick Lexington so I grew up with a really tight knit community. We were exiled from our families. We weren't allowed. I had no contact with my family back home ever growing up. I have a friend whose dad never talked to his family back home in Libya. He called his brother just to offer condolences when their mother passed, and his brother ended up going to um, 
prison for four years for accepting the phone call. So we had no contact with our family, but we became one another's surrogate family. And the Libyans that I grew up with, and that's why there's a tight bond. Uh, if, I don't know if any of y'all know Libyans and they all know each other. It's because these, this specific group didn't come to America as immigrants for school or for work. They literally came as refugees and were actively working towards a common goal. And so all the friends that I grew up with aren't just people like, oh, they happen to be Libyans so I'm hanging out with. No, they're people whose parents knew each other long before we were born and they fought together, died, lost people together, struggled together. Um, so, you know, in a way, it's a really beautiful upbringing. Where did rap come in the picture? Um, you were born here in America, right? Yeah, born okay. in the States. It's always kind of been in the picture. My father was a poet. It was maybe in my blood to be into writing. Uh, I had three uncles who weren't too much older than me. They were like brothers. My mom was, was really young, and she's the oldest sibling. So all her younger uh, brothers are kind of like brothers to me. I had three of them who grew up in the house with me. So like my oldest memories of life, I remember like riding in the back seat, listening to like Tupac or Coolio or whoever the hell. Gangsta's Paradise. Was that? Yeah, Gangsta's. That gangsta. <laughs> yeah, I remember being a kid listening to Gangsta's Paradise. You know, so. Grew up listening to a lot of my uh, uncles. And then I think in general, anybody who grows up in poverty or adversity or struggle, it's like a natural art form for them to gravitate towards. Interesting. Yeah. So Coolio, Tupac, uh, those were, were you like an East Coast guy or you just like, you you, you weren't biased towards a certain. Like, I think I always, I was always into lyrics, although I may not have known what was good lyrics and what was bad. Like I used to listen to No Limit a lot. Like <laughs> No Limit I, Soldiers? Yeah, That's I knew the lyrics. No I knew the lyrics. I just thought, I thought it was dope lyrics. <laughs> I, I, I didn't really are. know better. Master P? You know, Master P, P, I know who's. Oh, yeah. that's no, his label. That was his Sook the shocker. Now, mashallah, you doing you doing good for yourself. <laughs> but um, Yo, I came here in like '94, yeah, man. Yeah, and I was, I was Miss Jordan. Oh, okay, I always kicked it with people who are a lot older than me. I was around people older, so I was always put on to stuff that was a little bit older than my time. So I grew up on like Nas and Tupac. So and I was gonna tell you that too. Like for us, like me growing up, like there's a lot of rappers that were in in like a like popular that we didn't know about. Like for me, I had cousins that grew up in New York, and and like so we we were all on that on the New York stuff. So all the underground rappers, like Lords of the Underground, yeah. Nas, Rakim, you had um you know Guru, Gangstar, Blackstar, you had all these people that were that were underground. And at that time, I remember. Wait, how old are you now? I'm up there, bro. <laughs> okay, I'm he's probably, six, the, he's I'm probably six years younger than you. Yeah, so you're probably yeah, because I'm old. I'm I'm 36 now. Mashallah, you young, bro. You younger yeah, than Kanye. So, so, Kanye right he's a dinosaur. so so what I'm saying is is that no, but at that time when we were growing up with hip hop, we hated mainstream. Like I don't want to hear nothing on the radio, right? Everything on the radio is garbage. Sure. I want to hear the underground stuff. I mean, I uh, still had. I remember getting. A 36 Chambers cassette, the original, like the Wu-Tang, the actual, the, the album they dropped in the behind a van. My cousin got it for me. And I remember those things. And, and, and now it's funny because what he said was, is that hip hop or rap, a lot of people, they gravitate towards that because a lot of those lyrics come out of a place where people, um, they're venting themselves. Like they're venting their environment. Sure. They're, they're, they're talking about what they see. And that's what hip hop used to be. And nowadays, I feel like it's a little bit more commercialized than it should have been. I mean, yeah. I, or what, what it was in the past. But all the stuff that he's talking about, he's talking about like Nas, and even people like Master P, No Limit. Yeah, that, he's still that telling his story. Place, though. Yeah. I mean, it came from his environment, like where he grew up in and what he saw. For and sure. so maybe, and is this the same with you and in, in your music, meaning in, in terms of it being revolutionary? Because some people may say it's kind of like immortal technique, you know what I mean? Where it's all yeah, like revolutionary and it's all about that. gun ho and liberation, la, la revolution, you know what I mean? Like stuff yeah. like that. So 
is that maybe an influence for you, like growing up in, in the environment that you grew up in? I, I think I just, in my music, I just try to uh, paint a picture of what I see, share a story. I don't try to be like consciously a political rapper. I always get that like box. I didn't even vote in the last election. I did vote in the primaries for Bernie Sanders, though. I'll keep it real. Um, <laughs> you felt the burn. I felt the burn. <laughs> but, um, you know, the the revolution is like something that it wasn't contrived. People be like, all right, why don't you make a song about Trayvon Martin? Make a song about Syria. Make a song. Like, I'm not trying to be that guy that jumps on stuff and exploits it. And I struggled a lot with making the Can't Take Our Freedom song about Libya. But at that time, it was needed. When we first made it, media wasn't in Libya yet. There was a lot of misconceptions in the media. Me and a lot of the people of my generation ended up being the point people for media because our parents' generation maybe didn't have the eloquence in English or whatever. And we grew up. There's a, there's a certain second generation that grew up under that umbrella who we grew up going to conferences. We grew up uh, putting logistics together and, and buses and, and carpools for rallies. I put my last dollar to driving to D.C. I'd be 17 years old, drive to Washington, D.C. for a protest that has like nine people. You know what I mean? We grew up under that, so it was really natural for me. And even when we made Can't Take Our Freedom, I, laid a, I made a lot of moves that financially as an artist, like management or publisher, somebody like, yo, that's really stupid. Like, why are you giving out this song for free? And a lot of people are downloading it when you can make money. Or there's this t-shirt that you have that's really dope. Why don't you sell it? And I, I, I felt really weird about like making money or doing anything off of it. I'm going to be honest. If I, was, I had to do it all over again, I would just treat it normally because I know what my intentions are. I'm not really as worried about what other people think, what my intentions are. Um, but that, like the Libya stuff was just natural. But I do get the immortal technique thing a lot because of the positions that I've been in, a lot of my interviews tend to cover more serious topics. And it's like, I don't get to joke around as much. So they think I'm just like serious immortal technique, dude. But like, nah, I'm a regular dude. Like, <laughs> I'm right now, we already rescheduled this podcast so many times. But like, right now in the back of my head, I'm like, dang, I can't reschedule again. But like, it's game seven. I need to support John Wall. Like, I'm trying to watch this dude <laughs> close out the Celtics. Do, you Kentucky got DVR? <laughs> no, nah, but you know, once we get done, we'll catch the fourth quarter. No, yeah, we, we, we just watch yeah. it in there. No, for real. No, it's funny because I, was, I wasn't allowed to listen to like rap specifically growing up. Dude, my dad called it pornographic music. <laughs> One time he got, he got in my car and he heard Method Man. He's like, this is pornography. No, my, my dad would be like, it's, 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 I'll say it Bengali. It's like, that means like in basically you're listening to black people's like music you know because daisies were like like i don't know maybe arabs are say like daisies are like super racist right yeah like my parents generation i'm not i'm not like afraid to put that out there that's just the reality i want my daughter to marry like a rastafarian dude maybe sure it's i think like everyone's Muslim. racist everyone's racist somalians are racist we, we are racist are. against black folks dude we hate other somalians <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> yeah. i would say certain countries libya is similar to somalia where it's more tribal so yeah like, it's, it's tribal. very tribal well, and i was but telling these guys about this too like for example like a black like in Saudi arabia like a black Saudi will be racist to other africans yeah, yeah. even though he's it's black different. It's, it's, it's a power set. but i'll tell you one thing man about the community that i grew up in though, it was really beautiful. And also for me, I grew up like like every after school program, everything. I was the only non-black kid in everything. You know what I mean? So I did grow up in that world a little more. But in Lexington and why I'm so grateful for where I grew up and why it's best kept secret in the Muslim community and why the, there's reasons why the city gave it a Masjid Bilal Day officially in Lexington and why it's such a dope community. Black Americans founded the Masjid in the 70s initially. In the 80s, Libyans moved in. Usually when you have... Black Americans starting a masjid, and I'm just let's just keep it, you know, real. When you have Black Americans starting a masjid, and an immigrant population moves in, either a they take over the masjid, or b they just start their own masjid. 
So here the Libyans came in, there was synergy, chemistry, they just kind of worked them together. And then like Gambians came, Pakistanis came, Indonesians came. And the Meshit that I grew up in, we never had one person that was kind of in control of the Meshit. We always had a board. We always had, for most of my upbringing, four rotating imams, and they still have rotating imams. So it'd be like a Libyan, a Black American, a Somali American, and a Pakistani were like the four main imams. We always had a board that had men and women. And the really important factor that a lot of people don't consider, we always had youth on the board. And we always like uplifted our youth. We'd always have youth during Ramadan, during Tarweeh, give the khatira, a middle schooler, prepare this. You know, so I did come and I, I came up in a really diverse, uplifting, like positive Muslim community. So there was a little bit less of that than maybe a place like Chicago, which I was shocked when I moved here to see how segregated it is, especially amongst the Muslim community and amongst the like, like, like you know, I, I live near Devon now. So it's like Pakistanis have a spot, Bengalis have a spot, Sri Lankans have a spot. Bridgeview had all these Arabs and then like Syrians moved further south. They got their own spot. Yemenis are relegated to the back street in Bridgeview. Like, it's you know, it's like super segregated out here. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, I grew up uh, with a little bit of a different perspective. And I think even though America isn't on an individual level the best situation for Muslims, it is one of the best countries for Islam to thrive because diversity brings, when you have diverse Muslim communities, a lot of culture gets left back home and you have a more pure just deen come to the forefront. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's really important. But so this is what I, I'm wondering what some of the listeners might like be asking here. So let's say, you know, you can't, you were born in America, yeah. your father escaped Libya, and now he's here. So somebody might be asking, you know, hey, now you're in America with this great country with a lot of opportunity. Sure. Like, why, why are you guys, why would you still be interested in what's happening in Libya Her, in the sense that? Before you answer that question, here, I'm Somalian, right? Sure. And I grew up, uh, I was born there. And then um, in about 95, we moved to Toronto. Um, I'll be honest, <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Uh, I, I really don't. I mean, not only you know what Kibis Kalankal is. I know what Kalankal is. You know? Yeah. Okay. Like that, that thing. That little dude, whatever. Thing. I know what Kalankal is. <laughs> I could have told you that. It's the thing. It's the thing, man. Everyone knows. Um, but no, but I'll be honest. Uh, um, I don't know what it is with me. I just, uh, I don't think it's bad. Um, and not to be like insensitive or anything. I mean, um, I just don't care for it. Yeah. Right. No, um, and I, I'll be, I don't feel it's my responsibility. Like people ask me, it's like, oh, have you ever been back to Somalia? It's like, no, I, this is my country. This is my home now. But do you have family back there? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I do. I I really don't care. I know. I know. I know what people are thinking. It's like, oh, this this guy with clout and whatever. But you, but the truth is, but the truth is yeah. though, is that is that? Yeah. So this is a great question. People ask it. Now I'll say I I, I had this like argument with friends. Uh, recently, so our upbringing is a little bit different, and I'll give you a natural ex- uh, example that just happened naturally in this room a, a little bit ago. Uh, so we're not just like immigrants who happen to be from Libya, right? We moved here temporarily, actively working to move back home. So my father, Rahmatullah, used to always say, like, when we go home, when we go home. Growing up, we were in purgatory. We always thought we're going back home. Our families didn't invest in like financial like jobs and careers in america we always thought like next year the year after gaddafi had like nine lives bro every assassination <laughs> to like my uncle that i'm named after khalid and my brothers named after yahya were killed in 1984 uh, in an assassination attempt where they infiltrated his fortress babad azizia you know in a garbage truck and like they found their bodies in 2011 in a freezer years and years later oh, wow but um 
we like grew up actively working to go home. So it's not like we just came to America and happened to be from such and such country. So when the revolution happened, a lot of us moved back home. I grew up thinking I'm going to die in Libya. Uh, you just told me a little bit ago about the one Libyan that you know and how as, uh, right when the revolution happened, they moved back home. Like it's not a unique story. I went, I, my first trip I went, we filmed the documentary, met my family, did all that stuff. Second time I went, I took all my stuff. I took everything. I had intentions to stay. I ended up staying four months. It was a little bit harder logistically. But in terms of like lifestyle and all that, that's nothing. Like for Libyans, people like me who never stepped foot, I know a lot who moved to Libya and lived there because lifestyle sacrifice wasn't an issue for us. It was our dream to go to Libya. You know what I mean? Uh, but now things are like so bad that it's almost selfish to go there because you're not doing anything. Now it's like a free-for-all, a bunch of proxy wars, bunch of tribes, no strong government, three three simultaneous governments. It literally doesn't make sense. But the first two years following the revolution, like it worked. And I know a lot of people who have gone there, like a lot. I can name you 20 people on top of my head that are first-generation Americans who moved back there to live, you know. But it just got to the point where like people are getting kidnapped left and right, People don't know if their parents or their brothers and sisters are alive or dead. Healthcare is trash. One of the biggest rumors about Gaddafi used to be like, oh, free healthcare, free healthcare. Like, bro, A, Rikers High Island has free healthcare. That's so stupid. But B, <laughs> the quality of healthcare is horrible. People go to Tunisia, they go to Egypt whenever they need healthcare. They don't do it in Libya. In Libya, they'll stick you with a needle and then stick the next patient with the same needle. Don't sterilize it, nothing. They'll be like, I remember I had a friend's sister who went there and there was like blood on the sheets on the bench. She asked them to change and they're like, oh, you spoiled American. You know what I mean? Hmm. It's not good healthcare. I don't know if y'all heard about the kids that were like infected with HIV, like 200 kids. Um, yeah. So it's like, it's just not um, practical at this point. But all of our dreams was to go there and be part of the rebuild. But the way events have unfolded is just, uh, it comes a point in time where going there is more selfish than anything else. Was it, was it your dreams or your parents' dreams? No, it was my dream. My dream, man. It still is my dream. I needed to get to a point where it's at least safe enough where it's not selfish for me to go there and take family. To close yeah, so so let me ask you this one thing. So a lot of people, I mean, I know, I mean, hey, I, I, I remember when Libya was popping off and it was the revolution and the strong Iron Man getting kicked out. And because I remember back in the 70s, Gaddafi was known to be like a G, right? Like he was a strong man in resistance and everyone was like, yo, Gaddafi's crazy revolution. And, you know, among the Arab world, like Gaddafi was known to be a nutcase. Right, I mean, like he did some things that were kind of almost comical for for the people who used to watch sure. him, right? But there were a lot of Libyans at one point from Tripoli who were like, "Yo, Gaddafi's great." You know, Gaddafi is, and and he's great for us. He provides us when you know there was no poverty. But are you saying that from experience? Or are you saying that from what you've heard? Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm not saying this is true. I mean, I'm. I'm getting oh, okay. to my point now. Some of those Libyans would be like, "Yo, Gaddafi was." You know, he gave us money when we got married. You know, he gave you this and he gave you health care. He gave you, he sent people abroad for education. And then when the revolution happens, we hear on the flip side that Gaddafi, you know, I mean, that the truth starts coming out a little bit about how he is. I mean, I never heard the first part that you said. I've never heard that in my life. You know, the only so, situation so I can tell you is in Libya, but people don't understand. They'd look at rallies and they'd be like, look, people are cheering for Gaddafi in the streets. They don't know that these rallies, you have to go. If you don't go, you're in deep trouble. And even when you go, they have something called like enthusiasm police. Like you better look excited. You're not excited enough. You, you know, some, something's going to happen. And what people don't understand about Libya, it had the highest percentage of intelligence of any population, except the only country that came close is North Korea. One out of five people in Libya worked for government intelligence. Eyes and ears, 
everywhere. Even when he came to the UN in 2009, and every New Jersey, he was staying there. Yeah, like, every yeah. single Libyan student in America on scholarship had to go as a requirement to go. You know, and if you didn't, you'd have to deal with the consequences when you came back home or your family would. And they'd also be in the streets just giving money. They'd be in a random cafe. I have a friend, just this white girl. She's like, I was in a cafe and some dude came in. Is like, we got a rally tomorrow. Here's $200, everybody, whoever wants to go. Not even checking up, nothing, just throwing money. So it's like, I never, I never saw that. I never saw well, the, what, what, what I'm the saying, happy people. A lot of, a lot of uh, the media put out like on the other side, what they sure. call the alternative media. Because there's a lot of people who are like anti-US policies yeah. and, they're, and they're like, That's, you know what? And like they're pro-Russia, pro-Iran. No, I want to touch on that. That's an amazing, beautiful point. And the, for me personally, the Libyan revolution taught me how to think with more nuance than I ever did before. What it is exactly, it's very simple-minded thinking. You don't like American foreign policy so anything that's against you must be for right first of all Gaddafi specifically let's also remind everybody and this isn't some rumor conspiracy this is files from the FBI that were declassified from the CIA I'm sorry that in 1969 the CIA put him into power he was he got into power in a bloodless coup let's not forget that and since 2004 there was a lot of beef with Reagan and stuff but 2004 when America lifted sanctions in Libya Gaddafi was basically a henchman for them. He did everything they wanted, bent over backwards, so they weren't on bad terms. I mean, he loved Condoleezza Rice. Yeah. Oh, Lisa, baby. Lisa, Lisa, Lisa. Yeah, He's obsessed with Condoleezza. Lisa, he would love her. Yeah, he was trying to get that, but let's keep it real, sorry. <laughs> he was. No, but, uh, when, no, literally, when they caught him, yeah, yeah. his stuff, and his, had, his memorabilia, yeah, yeah. Like, right. of Condoleezza Rice. Yeah, Wright. obsessed with her. Yeah. But, you know, um, even when the revolution first happened, the United States didn't take a stance. It wasn't until things tipped on the other side and then you saw it. And I, I would see all these people who were in my quote-unquote circle in hip-hop, conscious hip-hop and all that stuff, who were on some BS and used to – I had so much propaganda against me. I had this long-ass um, article, news article about me, about how my dad was a Mossad agent and my mother was CIA. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll have everything at the books. I work for the uh, state. I, like, bro, I'm on no fly list. Like, I work for the uh, I'm a st- uh, depart- state funny, department. Though, I'm trying to cut you off. You know funny, dude? This is, I was telling another guy this. This is the problem among the Arabs. Wallahi, man. Every time, like, somebody says an opinion that someone doesn't like, they become a Zionist. Oh, he's a Muhammad. Yeah. He's a Zionist. And this was Muslim. mostly, this was like, you know, the hip-hop circle, like, like, the woke yeah, but, black but, but, circle, but, but in general, from yeah, those general. people. You know what it is? It's this alternative media where they feel like everything that America does is all inherently wrong, yeah. and so in order for them to be like conscious, they have to be anti-American. Yeah, but it's silly because let me tell you, America might do something. They might not have good intentions. Their intentions might not even be good, but the act doesn't make the action right. So when that happened, I started seeing how people saw Gaddafi, bro. It started making me change my views on everybody. Ahmadinejad. Uh, you know, uh, Hugo Chavez, anybody. I just stopped having an opinion one way or other about any of them. I was like, you know what? I really don't know about any of them. And it's really silly to just be opposite for the sake of being opposite. And I had, I was on RT News, like in the very beginning of the revolution when Gaddafi was slaughtering people. I was on RT News. They invited me and they were shocked. They were asking me questions and I wasn't very familiar with RT, so I didn't know their position. And I just told them what was popping and guess whose interview was deleted off the website forever when i'm trying to put my press kit together and my manager's <laughs> like yo this video you on rt is do- oh where is it at you know it just shows these biases and these stands yeah. and i used to think a lot of these people 
a lot of groups like socialist groups and these type of groups that would march with us. I used to think they were like really independent minded. And I've realized, and I'm going to just keep it real, like a lot of these people are just sheep in a smaller herd. You know, I was telling these guys, a lot of these social justice groups and all the things that are walking around, a lot of it is emotional rhetoric, dude. They don't know what they believe in. I'm not saying everybody. You see people that support Palestine, but they're pro-Assad. Dude, I don't get that. And I'm telling you, like, I'm going to give you an honest story, okay? One time I was at a pro-Palestine rally downtown, okay? And these guys were chanting, you know, free, free Palestine. So what I did was I said, free, free Muslim lands, right? The girl turned around and goes, you can't say that here. Haram. <laughs> I, you can't say that here because it's Palestine rally. I said, okay. All right. Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fearing for all the Muslim countries. So anyways, time goes by, right? Okay. And um, so I say it again. And then, you know, Zohar comes, Asr comes. And nobody is praying, right? And I thought maybe Zohar went and I'm like, you know what? Maybe they have an excuse. Maybe they prayed. You know, Asr came, you know, um, no, maybe maybe the travelers, right? You know what I'm saying? And, like, they didn't pray, right? So, I'm like, then Maghrib came, right? I'm like, for sure they got to pray. They've been here all day, right? Even if they combine, they got to pray Maghrib, right? So, Maghrib time comes, nobody pray, nobody prays. And I'm like, so, again, she goes, like, you know, free, free Palestine. And I'm like, free, free Muslim land. And I have- so, anyways, and then, so, she's like, you can't That's why he's a quad ass, man. Like, you can't do that here. You can't do that. And I'm like, listen, I told her, I said, listen, what are you going to do when you free Palestine? I mean, what is the reason why we free Palestine? They go, oh, you know, it's the Holy Land. I'm like, yeah, but what do you do in the Holy Land? <laughs> you know, what do you do in Al-Aqsa? What's the point of it, right? You pray, right? You pray. I'm like, what are you going to do? Are you going to free the land and, you know, do Debka and, and play, you know, backgammon? Like, what's going to happen there? No, I'm still, I mean, that's the point I'm trying to make. Like, a lot of times there's emotional argument. And now, granted, could I, was I maybe harsh about why, what I said? Yes. But the point is, is that a lot of these movements and protests and rallies are all about emotion. They don't use their brain. They don't know why they're behind it. And that, that kind of stuff. Is a problem because you become uh, like sheep. I had people I really respected. Like, I'll call them out. Davey D is DJ in, in the Bay Area who's like conscious, whatever. And they, so much propaganda because, you know, uh, Gaddafi paid a lot of money to Farrakhan, right? $400 million. So the nation was on this propaganda tour saying that the revolution wasn't a revolution of the people against the government. It was white Libyans versus black Libyans slaughtering them, genocide. And a lot of black Americans. You saw that too, right? About yeah. how they're killing black Libyans. Yeah, yeah I went. Yeah. I went to one of their talks, and every all these Libyans were there protesting. They're like warmongers. I'm like, what? <laughs> these are the Libyans. They're from there. How are you gonna tell them what's going on? You know? And then they'd they'd call on people in the in the audience. I remember there's one in Houston, and they'd call only on black people. First black dude stands up. Turns out he's Libyan. They try to shut him off. Second dude, Libyan. They call on three black Libyans in a row, and they try to shut all of them out. And these dudes are like, no, that's not what's going on. But a lot of black Americans aren't really in tune with what goes on in Africa. It's just still one big place to them. Africa's like so many different things going on, so many different ethnicities, languages. Just because a leader is an African leader doesn't mean the people like him. There's dictators in Africa too. And so they just kind of like, there's a big portion of America that looks to Farrakhan for like what our opinion should be. And that was a problem. So I got all types of like, um, propaganda thrown at me. David D would be like, show me one picture of a black revolutionary. And I'm like, bro, I'm not about to do that. I'm not going to be the white person. I'm like, I have a black friend. Da, 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 da. Yeah, like, I don't have nothing to prove to you, bro. Yeah, people make it about color. And this is what they do when, they, when they're trying to digress from the main point. Like, they, they break it up into color or religion or <laughs> politics or all that stuff. 
But the the point I want to and just a disclaimer, dude. I have nothing against the Palestinian cause. You know, Palestine should be a free land. I don't want anyone to take it the wrong way. You know, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm you know crapping on the Palestinian cause. No, the whole point is the mentality. That sometimes you really have to know what you believe in. You can't just be moved emotionally. Like for example, there will be people, and, and, and this happens even with the Syrian revolution. I Meaning, there are people. I'm not saying don't support the revolution, but what I'm saying is that understand why you do. Know why sure. this person is a dictator. Why are these people revolting against? somebody not just because you saw a picture on facebook where some kid's dying right. no i mean understand what that is because propaganda can be done by any side sure. that's what we learn nowadays right propaganda can be done by uh-huh. anybody and anyone can do it whether you, you know even on even on the side that you support sometimes you have to be ready to say hey you know what not everything is as it seems anymore you sure. have to be able to ready to criticize and one of the biggest things as muslims ourselves is we have a problem with self-criticism. Meaning if people, when you criticize constructively yourself, you become an enemy. And that's not the, you know, truth is the ultimate thing that we have to be part of, right? I mean, we have to be focused on that. And so this is why I brought it up. Not because I want to, you know, I want to, um, you know, take away from the actual real revolution and the real struggle that people are going through because that's all real and that's meaningful. Um, but the, the thing that I wanted to circle back to is now, Take us to when Gaddafi got removed from power, right? Sure. Obviously, you know, we saw him on TV saying, you know, bet, bet, da, da, zing, yeah, zing, yeah. Right? And then now he, like, <laughs> he got kicked out, right? Yeah. So now he's, he's, you know, they caught him and they killed him. But so two years, you say Libya was great. Like, I mean, people were, were yeah. trying to rebuild. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you exactly what, in my opinion. Well, before we get to let me just make okay. a comment. Because now we know that, you know, obviously that issue is spreading across Iraq and Syria and Hashem and all these areas. And then we start peep up in, in, in Libya a little bit. So now this is my question. Do you feel that a lot of what happened as far as revolution in, in, in Libya got tainted by groups like this coming into Libya and kind of just stirring the pot? I think it's a combination. I think it's both. I think there's a lot of outside influence. Um, there's, there's a proxy war right now. There's there's like on one side you've got UAE. Well, before you, well, why don't, let's go chronologically okay. so we can all put it. Sure. After Gaddafi goes down. Yeah, let me break it down. A lot of people don't understand. And America did not initiate the revolution. That's what people don't understand. We had a group before February 17th, which was this day that was planned for protests. We knew. That's why like there used to be a joke in Arabic because Tunisia had a revolution and Egypt did. And it'd be like... Uh, the Tunisians would tell the Libyans to be- bow down or bend down, crouch, basically. The Tunisians would tell the Libyans to crouch so we can save the real men in, in Egypt, you know, before Libyans had stepped out and marched. But we knew that the reaction in Libya by the government would be really different, you know. They don't care to just openly murder. So before that, a lot of us had equipped, and not me as much, because I'm not very tech savvy, but a lot of people in our group were training Libyans how to use audio boo. Google Voice, all different types of technology to document what was going on beforehand because we knew. And we used to not even be able to get phone calls. We'd get one phone call. We'd have like thousand Libyans meeting up in D.C. together. Everybody's working on what they can work on and um, hearing stories. What's going on? Okay, this group of 25 houses banded together. That group of 25 houses banded together. These dudes did not have guns. There were no guns in Libya, as we have to understand. Be like, what are you guys doing? Well, we all have sticks and clubs, we put nails in them, and we have three rows. And when the uh, mercenaries come or Gaddafi's troops come, we have three lines. The first line is running up to them. They all know that they're going to die. They're first in line. They're all getting killed. But it's getting each line is getting us closer to them where we can fight hand-to-hand, you know? And the way they got guns at large was a guy in Benghazi tied his hands to his steering wheel, and he filled his back seat with uh, canisters of gas from his kitchen. 
He drove into the wall of the military barracks knowing that they were going to shoot at him. But what the troops didn't know was that his car was going to blow up. His car exploded, opened up the gates, and people started pouring in. Of course, the first people in line are all getting killed, but eventually people are getting in. They took over. They have guns. They, they, Benghazi is liberated, first city. Now, at this point, they can smuggle guns to other parts of Libya and to other countries have trades and stuff like that. Now, and that's a port city for everybody doesn't know. So when they control Benghazi, yeah. they can access aid from other people. Exactly, exactly. So the revolution didn't start behind any type of ideology, political belief, ethnicity. Everybody's on all different types of the spectrum. They're just citizens, cab drivers, students, doctors, whatever, you know. And what they did was they're forming these little groups. Usually, initially, it was just based on neighborhoods. This neighborhood gets together. This neighborhood gets together. Eventually, these groups became what is now known as militias. And this is where I believe things went wrong. Once the revolution was successful and Gaddafi was gone, most of the well-intended revolutionaries just went home. Like my cousins and stuff that I know, they're like, yo, we just went home. Went back to our lives. Work was done or something. Or? Yeah, like okay. the country's free. Now go back to, the to regular life. Decide now. Is yeah. that what it was? Like what is now, it? Now we'll let the people decide. Yeah, we did. We did what we did. But okay. then the government at the time started like financially compensating these groups. So a a lot of people that fought with Gaddafi switched sides and wanted to claim that they were revolutionary to get paid. And the second thing is there's no police force or military. So what the government did, which was well intended, but in hindsight is what helped ruin everything, is they started compensating these groups and training them in an effort with the intention of eventually absorbing them into na a national military and police force. So they were, to be the, they were the law. They were paying They them wanted to them to be the law. But what they ended up doing was empowering all these different groups who are now fighting each other. And now this became like warlords fighting exactly. each other. Exactly. Became stronger than the government. And the government in the beginning didn't want to take guns away by force. They didn't want... The people were sensitive. They didn't want another uprising. So they started offering... First, they'd have like, turn in your gun day, like a national holiday, or we'll compensate you, you know, over these next few months. If you don't turn it in now, we're going to give you less money for it next month, you know? But so basically, they were trying to buy their loyalty. Not buy their loyalty, but they wanted peace, but they know that people put their life savings into buying a gun. You know what I mean? So they're okay. not going to just make them turn it in and be like, okay, well, we'll pay you for it. I mean, that was their security. They didn't want to take their security away from Exactly. It's it. very sensitive. You don't really yeah. know what to do. You don't want to just fight people and be like, it's against the law. Yeah. So they offered them the money and told them it would get lower every month because they want eventually to have, you know, have peace. So what happened is they empowered these different groups. At the same time, you know, Obama, I don't know if y'all saw the interview when they asked him, what's your biggest regret in office right before his last days? He said, my number one regret while I was in office was not having a plan in Libya for the day after, like what happens next, you know? So that happens. Now you have these militias that are in power. And now you have a proxy war of different countries. The UAE and Egypt on one side and then Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Qatar on another side who are using Libya as kind of their playground in the region. You know, and these people are, are financing this person. These people are fi financing that person. Um, so now it's kind of just a mess. In the beginning, one of the reasons the country is how it is now is because of Gaddafi, because there was no institutions in Libya. It's not like tu Tunisia and Egypt where there's institutions. We have no institutions, no infrastructure. We're not starting from scratch. We're starting from negative trying to get to zero. And a country can only live on goodwill and survive on goodwill for so long. What do you mean? So there's like no hospitals and schools? And there's like hospitals, but there's not like system. We didn't even have a constitution. 
So there wasn't even like actual yeah, because laws. Gaddafi believed it with a continuous revolution. It's just Gaddafi, yeah. He, he just, he just no, winged it. No, he really yeah. believed the revolution wasn't over. He's like, yeah, I'm still living. Remember, he yeah. would say stuff like but that. But even while he was in power, yeah. there, we didn't have, like, there was no constitution. We literally have not had a constitution since the democratic monarchy before 69. The you know Italians were there, right? No, after the Italians, we had a King Adris. So it was like the, the Sunnisiya movement. I don't know if you heard that. Umar Mukhtar and like, yes, okay, exactly. Right. That was after, so after Umar Mukhtar, but Umar Mukhtar was part of the Sunnisiya movement. Then they had and, like, and that's Monarch. crazy because when Muslims, when we hear about Umar Mukhtar, he's a hero to us. Like, yeah, you know, he's a hero. Like, yeah, he's a hero. Robin, like he came there and he just, you know, he died like a man, right? And For then sure. we end up with, you know, with Gaddafi, like years so, later. So like, who was King, King Idris then? Is he uh, like a good? Was he considered to be a good guy? Uh, I think generally some Libyans aren't fond. You know what I mean. Some there's a lot of propaganda towards the end of his life about him being like a pawn for Britain and stuff like that. He was pretty amicable to the West, um, but, but we had what, though, we still fair, had a parliament even through the monarchy. We had a mo- and a to parliament. be fair though, at this time this was a huge turmoil for the Muslim Ummah at this time. Anyway, sure. like, the Ottoman Empire had just fell, yeah. and then everybody was trying to just get a piece of the pie and, yeah. and maintain their sovereignty. I, yeah, I'm personally a fan. I mean, we had stuff under him that we didn't have under Gaddafi, like proper garbage disposal and stuff you That's know what crazy. i'm saying a hundred years ago i yeah. mean, or, I mean and, and you got to remember like of sheikh Maktoum was it somebody from the uae came to gaddafi uh came to libya back in the day when gaddafi was there and it was like I, th- I think it was was it 72 actually might i don't remember if it was late 60s or early 70s and they're like i wish dubai could look like tripoli one day you know what i mean and look look at the difference now. In Tripoli, Gaddafi had a lot of money, $140 million a day just from oil, not counting anything else, and only 6 million people, a tiny population. Very easy to get things moving. But you have to understand, people were discouraged from even coming together for any cause. There was a landfill, not a technical landfill, just a place where everybody threw their garbage in Benghazi, and the people got together and wanted to beautify it. This is the first like civic engagement in a long time because you're not really allowed to collect in masses there, you know, before. And they beautified it, man. It took a long time. They planted a garden. And then like two weeks after they opened it, government came and just bulldozed it just to show you like, yo, don't get, don't get together. Don't do stuff. Wow. So it was hard. So now you have three governments. You have a government that was voted on. You have a second government that was voted on. And then the first government didn't relinquish power. And then you have a government that the UN put into power. So we literally have three simultaneous governments right now, along with a lot of various tribes um, and militias. And it's, it's just it's a mess. So when did this whole this whole mess about Hillary Clinton and Benghazi, what's, where does that all play? I mean, that, nobody even knows what that means, bro. That's like a flash. That was, that was like a like big Benghazi. Like... You don't even know what's going on. First of all, Christopher Stevens, people don't know this. He wasn't killed. He wasn't murdered. He died from smoke inhalation. Yeah. There was video of Libyans carrying him out. Libyans loved this man, bro. He used to be there, attended weddings, no, had lots of friends. He was the homeboy. Like he was, he he was the homie. He yeah. ate bazine, bro, which is a big mound yeah. of barley and dough, which you sit around in a circle and eat communally with sauce dripping down your fingers. Like, you got to be a real G to eat yeah. this stuff, you know? He was beloved in Libya. You know what I mean? And it's, I don't know what really happened. I know that has nothing to do with terrorism. It has nothing to do with like the prophet move, the film about the prophet that came out. Yeah, people are mad. So bogus. There's videos of the people who went on and they're all on some like, they're cussing. They're obviously people who aren't like in tune with their deen, the way they're talking and carrying themselves. So it's not some like religious extremist thing. What I thought was interesting, I don't know if you guys remember, General Petraeus was under a scandal because he had a mistress and she had access to a lot of um, classified documents. 
the last thing that ever happened in the news about General Petraeus, they don't talk about that anymore if you guys haven't noticed. Like this big Trump-Russia scandal is huge, but the General Petraeus stuff they stopped talking about. And I remember she was giving a talk in Colorado and she said it so casually. She's like, oh, well, you know why the Libyans attacked the embassy, right? And she's like, they were holding uh, the American embassy, the uh, I forget what it's called, like a satellite location, was holding hostages. The CIA were ho- holding hostages up the road. That's what she said, bro. And immediately FBI denied it, CIA denied it, we've never detained anyone, I'm sorry, CIA denied it, we've never detained anyone around the world, we've never tortured anybody, but like it would make a lot of sense if they were coming to like free their people, I don't know what happened, but like the Hillary Clinton thing is just mumbo jumbo bro, even the people that believe in Benghazi, they don't know what they're talking about, it's just kind of like flash words. So the thing is, and this is why I was, I was circling back to the whole ISIS Daesh thing, because they were blaming them and saying, look, oh, Daesh is infiltrating in Libya now, and this is one of the arguments that some of the people who were pro-Gaddafi will make. That, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, yeah, he might have been a strong man and an iron fist, but, you know, it, it was stable. And now you have ISIS in, in Libya now. Yeah, I love it. I, I, I have an exact response to this. I always tell it to, like, my Uber drivers who, like, whether they're from Pakistan or Ghana or something, they might have something good to say about Gaddafi. Um, f- first of all, yeah, it was safe, but is it safe the way that a hostage is safe? Like, yeah, you're safe as long as you shut up and do what I tell you, you're safe. I know a lot of people that got killed and kidnapped in, in, in Libya and family members. So it wasn't that safe. It was safe in terms of crime. Um, and this is what I'll say to you. And this is what I say to them. Because some people be like, oh, well, wasn't it better before? Wasn't it better before? Better before, that's not the right question to ask. Because let's say you have a slave master, right? And this slave master oppresses his slaves rapes their slaves, takes what they want. Y'all know Gaddafi had his little 200 female bodyguards, did what he wanted with them. His his uh, own people that worked under him, his generals, his secretaries, that. he used to take their wife. What? I'm shocked. Yo, he'll take somebody's wife. He had beef with his son Safe for a long time because Safe was in love with a girl. Yeah, Gaddafi yeah. didn't even see her and he went and sent for her to lay with her because he's like, oh, if my son likes her, she must be bad. You know, this dude was like, people don't know. He changed the Quran with his hands. He took out Qul. Like, he why would you say Qul in the Quran? Right? Yeah, yeah, we shouldn't say The green Qul book. Like, but yeah. even the Quran, he changed Anas. He put Anasi. Yeah. He like, you go in the Fajr prayer a lot. You're going to just like, people don't know. Muhammad. You, you know he talked to me like, Muhammad, Muhammad. He never said like, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So Muslims don't know. But what I would say is, you got a slave master. Let's say he oppresses his slaves and the slaves decide to revolt. You you would say that the slaves are justified in their revolt. It's in their right to revolt against this dude. Now, what happens after does not negate the initial act. Those slaves or, you know, enslaved humans, they may get it together. They may, may build an awesome society. They may not. They may not be able to feed themselves. They may turn on each other. But whatever it is that happens after that moment has no bearing on whether it was they were within their rights before. Yeah, something got them to that point, that right. boiling point where they just this is the right. only reaction they had left. Sure. You know what they had to do. Yeah. <clears throat> no, but I just want to say something. Some people who don't know Gaddafi, like, see, a lot of people I think who live in America, they don't realize the stories that we heard of Gaddafi, like in the Middle East and things like that. Like, he was straight up crazy sometimes. Like, I'll, yeah. I'll give you a small story about Gaddafi that people don't really know. Um. <laughs> Like one time, you know how they have the Arab summit meetings, right? Sure. So they had called, one of the meetings were in, in, in Dubai, okay? So he, this guy doesn't RSVP or nothing. He, you know, he just decides to show up, right? So he's flying his plane over there, okay? It flies over, and ob- obviously the intelligence recognizes that, hey, there's a Libyan aircraft coming, it's carrying Muammar Gaddafi. So we're gonna, you know, obviously meet him with a delegation. 
So the plane lands, right? And he's in the plane for like three hours. Like three hours, he doesn't get off the plane. So finally he gets off the plane and the delegation's like, hey, you know, hello, Sala, welcome to Dubai. You know, what took you so long in the plane? We're waiting for you. And he goes, you know, uh, I started a book uh, in, in Libya and I wanted to finish it before I got off the plane. So I don't want to get off the plane until I got done reading. And they were like, uh, okay. And then what happened was, they're like, okay, well, you know, why don't you come and, you know, stay in the, you know, obviously the royal palace, you can stay with us. And he's like, nah, nah, nah. He's like, uh, I got my bodyguards. I'm just going to pitch a tent right over there. Yeah, he does you know, a front tent thing. And he didn't care, bro. Like, I mean, some he people. He pitched it on Trump's property when he came to America. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, I mean, so you, when, you, when you when you hear these stories, you think of a guy, like, yeah, it might sound kind of like, you know, you know, baldy. But but yeah. the thing is that he's not all there mentally. Like, I he mean, wasn't all there. He's very, uh, there's a lot of similarities. Lib- Libyans, one thing that's very similar about Trump and Gaddafi right now is they're both so easy to laugh at. You know, like Trump's on uh, SNL every night, right? Yeah. They're so easy to make fun of and laugh about that it kind of covers up their sadistic nature, like the seriousness of their brutal nature because of how, like, much you smile and laugh when you see them. You you know, a lot of uh, people I knew in the the Arab world, you know, some of the the, the scholars and stuff, they would compare him to Al-Hakim bi-Amrullah, meaning how, you know, in Egypt, in the Fatimian, how he was crazy, how he wanted to make, like, them sleep in the day and work at night and things and reverse things. This is the kind of stuff that Gaddafi would think about. And, like, he would tell his people, he'd make a, a random holiday, like, out of nowhere, like, just close everything down just because he felt like it he canceled Eid when Saddam got killed there was no Eid in Libya yeah. he's like we're not, we're not celebrating Eid like Saddam got killed oh, no so he, him and Saddam were like tight I guess no, I, don't not really th- I don't know if they're tight it, it, it might have just been like a publicity move I have no idea I, can, I can't speak to, to another, his intentions bro <laughs> yeah, yeah. But how are you gonna cancel Eid? Like Allah created Eid. Yeah. You didn't create Eid. Yeah. I, I wanna maybe maybe more can answer this. So when you grew up in like the Salafi circles, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of like the Salafi circles, they're like we shouldn't because I know a lot of the Salafi cats were totally against any kind of revolution. Wait, hold on one second, right there. You know what's really interesting about this? His son Muhammad Gaddafi. Yeah, he was like among the Madhalis. And he would say that, oh, you guys should give, you know, uh, to my father. I mean, or not, 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 not be against him because khuruj is haram. You can't do, I mean, he's making these arguments and all these are the ones, the ulama that were the kibar ulama that were over there were endorsing that with him. And they were telling him to, and you know what the, the crazy thing is? This is what boiled my blood. You ask them, how do you respond to something like this? And they would say, be patient. When your family is being killed in front of you, you want to be patient? And so this is the, and so when you bring, the reason when you bring this up, I'm telling you because the ironic thing is that his son was one of these, you know, from from these madakhla kind of like this, right, right. And so he was encouraging people to be obedient to his father, even though he knows or he claimed to know that his father was being oppressive, but he wanted them to still follow him. I mean, there is there is that opinion, and I'm not a scholar, so I don't, you know, I can't really comment on that. And uh, you know, if somebody feels that way. Like, I, I can only respect it. I just don't know that we came up on something completely different. You know what I mean? But I, I can't really say or criticize that way of line of thinking. Yeah, I think I think sometimes it's blanket. Like, you can't compare, like, Qaddafi to King Salman or who's, yeah. you know, or who's the, whoever runs the UAE these days. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, like, that's a difference. Like, I don't yeah. think people in Saudi or, or Dubai are getting, like, freaking like yeah. held hostage no. I mean I, and, and honestly I, I, mean. I believe in it to an extent because I'll tell you what uh, after no af- me too don't get me wrong after Gaddafi went there was a few leaders that we had that were really good man in Libya and they all got crucified bro because Libyans just weren't happy bro I was like bro you know what I'm saying like Isa could come back right now 
and run and Libya and they wouldn't be happy. Yeah, no, you know you. what I'm saying? My, my point is this, though, bro. This is what I'm trying to say. Is that when you have somebody who's changing religious things openly in yeah, front it's of open. you, Yeah, that's open. He's literally changed the Quran. You like, know what, I mean? I mean, what I mean yeah. is he left the manhaj. I mean, yeah. the middle. You know, when, when, you, when you do things and, and, like, take away things from the deen, yeah. like, see, all the arguments that they make about obeying a leader, but what's the key thing? As long as he establishes the salah over you. Right, and that's the key thing. When you take that away, like you just mentioned, the Eid Salah, he's removing that from the people. Yeah. He's removing. He's cha- he wants to change ayat of the Quran. Yeah. Those things are are. That's when your religion is being played with. So when you tell, and and in that moment, that person becomes justified. In 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 in, 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 in I, I believe in that rebellion. But I'm I'm not here to argue positions. I'm not a scholar. Right. Like you're not a scholar. But in my mind, though, I just feel like. You know, it's kind of hard to tell somebody that, hey, you should be patient with someone who's changing your religion. Plus, you got to remember, too, in Libya, people didn't come out guns blazing. They just came out protesting. It wasn't until they were getting slaughtered that they're like, yo, we need to fight back. So that's another thing. It's not like Feb 17. We knew like some stuff may shake down. You know what I mean? But it's not like Feb 17 was planned on being an uprising of the people physically because we didn't even have anything to physically uprise with that's just kind of the reaction you know the moment that i knew uh, Gaddafi was crazy was i remember he had an interview i think it was cnn or somebody who came there and he was saying that they asked him about what's happening around and he just goes and it was one of the rare interviews that he does in English. Like, he never says anything in English, right? Like, oh, there's no problem. There's nothing going on, right? And we're like, dude, there's, like, people chanting right outside, like, you know, or, I mean, you know, in Benghazi, you know, like, like we and just And when see- they found him before they killed him, he's like, Shinfi, what, yeah. like, what's going on? What's up? What's wrong? What's going on, guys? And- You're hiding in a sewer right now. What are you talking about? Why are you acting so... Like Ignorance. nonchalant about it, like there's nothing going on. Like he was just going fishing in the sewer. Like there was nothing. Like no big deal. And that's when I knew the guy was crazy. Like it, when when you can honestly come to the media, and even though everyone in the world has witnessed people like protesting and blowing and like you know setting a fire to things, and and you're just saying like there's, like there's nothing wrong with the place. Like you got to be Trump, crazy. You got to be somewhat crazy. <laughs> Dang, I was gonna I was gonna say something. Uh, yeah, we got like it shows at, at like nine forty by the way. So we have an hour. Oh, okay, I just saw you going like that. No, no, like, no. I don't know if oh, you want to take a break. No, no. Like I, I wanted to like we we've been on Libya pretty heavy. Is there anything else yeah. on Libya you wanted to like mention? No, no, we're good, man. We we chops it up about Libya. Yeah, I just learned more than like ninety nine percent of people. Yeah, I didn't know anything about Libya. Um, so right now you said there's three governments yeah. that are there right now, right? So what what do you do as a as I guess a revolutionary, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you want to call yourself. So right? I, um, yeah, I wouldn't call myself a revolutionary. When the when the revolution first happened, I was speaking in the media a lot about it because I was educated about what was going on. Mm-hmm. I haven't for the last three years. I've rejected most media requests that are just about Libya, like not the music KM ones, like just the mm-hmm. news type stuff, um, because I, I I could not tell you. And if I claim to know the answer, I would be lying to you. I really am at a loss. I don't know what. It is that needs to happen. I know in hindsight things that should have um, been done differently, and I knew even when it was going on some of them. Um, but right now, man, I, I I could not tell you. I don't I don't know. I don't have an answer, man. Like now is at the point where it's like really rock bottom, and it's just making dua. And now we're seeing the people do ugly things. The people before never. First of all, we never had like you know ISIS is coming in and taking advantage. We never had any of that before. We didn't have that kind of like everybody's Sunni in, in Libya. We have like ethnic differences. But it wasn't really sect. We never had sectarian violence. It never like occurred. Um, but now you're seeing people like do some crazy stuff that 
is shocking to me. And, and, you know, there's people that are 40 years old and grew up their whole life under Gaddafi. So, you know, who knows how they picked up what they picked up. But I don't have an answer for you, man. You know, it's interesting. It's like, uh, you know, first it started with Tunisia. And then, um, and then you know all the other countries, and you know yeah. Arab Spring came in, right? And then now it's Syria, and you know like poor Palestinians, they've <laughs> they've just been yeah. it's been going on for a while. But then, um, but so Libya, Gaddafi dies, and then you don't hear anything about it. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I completely forgot. I didn't know you only hear stuff when it's something negative. Exactly, exactly. When there's someone crazy or or you know a character like Gaddafi, or whatever. Yeah, right? I mean Gaddafi so, died, and the next thing we heard about Libya was Benghazi. Oh, yeah. Americans being attacked in Benghazi. Yeah. You know what I mean, and the narrative was wrong. Like I said, yeah. Christopher Stevens was a beloved figure in Libya. Yeah. Yes. But what do what do you yourself as an individual? I mean, you know, you you spent a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, you dedicated a good a good part For of your sure. life. I feel like doing this, right? W- what's what's your next step? What do you do? You just. I mean, I really legitimately in relation to Libya, I don't have an answer. I know for Mm -hmm. me, my role at this point is to try to unify people as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Before we had a hard line, especially where I grew up in Kentucky, we didn't go to Libya. We didn't really talk to people that went to Libya. It was like a hard line stance. Like I know we know who we were after the revolution. A lot of people popped up the woodworks and like, Oh, we've been strong revolutionary families from day one and blah, blah, blah. And they'd like point at other people and call them this and that. And like, we know who we were on the inside. And I was like, that time is gone right now. There's different factions in Libya. Some of whom I very strongly disagree with what they're doing, but I'm not, it's not as black and white as with Gaddafi. We're like, Oh, if you're with him, then I'm against you. Now it's like, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misinformation. TV channels in Libya are just owned by people with money who want to open a TV station. You know what I'm saying? So now it's just about like, yo, let's love each other. Like after the revolution, people were hugging in the streets, embracing. The brotherhood was like nothing I've ever witnessed. Me as a, you know, I make music for a living. Part of the different part of the reason is because that's why I'm not a political rapper. I just want to make a difference socially. Some of the plans that I have coming up for Libya related music is really just about connecting people and reminding each other that we're brothers we have families like literally split down the line fighting against each other now like actual like i remember during the revolution media would call say civil war i'm like bro it's not a civil war like it's the people all united against the regime but now there are you know areas of libya that actually do have civil war going on and i'm I'm just not for at this point anybody killing anybody anymore like those days are done wow so like this we got some pretty heavy stuff with libya i, I want to like lighten it up a little bit sure. and mention like so a couple of weeks ago we, we get together for like dinner yeah and i, I kind of like you know me i got no filter right um so yeah, i kind of like i mean i've met you twice before and i I feel like i know i got a good yeah my friend that was with me was like yo i love that dude like, hey, man that dude is hilarious no because like <laughs> i, I, I kind of made you i feel like i almost made your head i actually had to apologize because i usually never had to apologize because i felt like i really made your head spin so i i don't know how it came up i was like you know three you guys you know you guys you were there with two other two yeah. your friends and uh we were at shawarma in 24 hour spot for ramadan you go out there and get some, get some suhoor there by the way Good spot for Sahur. But anyways. I'm not advertising. They don't yeah, well, hey, we're not getting paid for that, man. Cut that out. <laughs> I, I, I just like the shawarma, by the way. Their garlic sauce is good. But, uh, you know, he's a bigger test of Lebanon guy. So I mentioned how Khalid, you know, so it seems like, you know, you you just remind, you look like a, just a dude I'd see in like Bridgeview, like a Bridgeview Arab. And then you got like. You say you look like a Bridgeview Arab. That's you just that? assumed the three of us were all. The three of us were like, you know. Two you, of you them weren't pa- from Chicago. Yeah, three of us. You guys could all pass for like a Bridgeview Arab. Yeah, you didn't say you could pass. You, just, you, you talked were, to us as if we were Bridgeview yeah? Arabs. Yeah. And so 
the, the, the funny thing is, um, I remember, and we, I remember I texted you later because I was at Moss Foundation. I live in that area. And I think I saw a dude that kind of had, was wearing a backwards cap and like some joggers. And he just, I just happened to see him running the line. So I just had a like flashback moment. Yeah. And then you broke it down. You were like, listen, man, bridge you do don't wear clear glasses. And yeah, you know, <laughs> yo, let's just put it out there. I'm not hating on bridge you, bro. Yeah. It's like somebody could come up to you and think you're Mexican or whatever. It's not to hate on Mexico, but you just, you have your own identity. And I, I, I feel like my friends and beloved brothers in Bridgeview make fun of me for things that are very different than the culture, the American culture that they're a part of. So I was surprised to um, be placed in that category. Well, but talk a little bit about Bridgeview. the various, because you, cause you guys mentioned like Dearborn, New Jersey, the Bay Area, like places yeah. where there's a high concentration of like Arab Americans. Sure. How were like, from your vantage point, and you were from Lexington, Lexington yeah. Kentucky. Yeah. How was that, from your vantage point, how do they differ? Like, what's the different flavors you can see? <laughs> you trying to make some. <laughs> I'm trying to do one. You trying to give me some enemies, man. <laughs> I mean, like, there's stereotypes. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, Dearborn, a stereotypical Dearborn out of. According to the generalization, <laughs> yeah, would be like that Jersey Shore look, like threaded eyebrows, Guido haircut, <laughs> gym tan laundry. You know what I'm saying? Bridge, you would be like, well, bro, like, uh, hold on, hold on. I know Dearborn is pretty well known for the people that don't know. I mean, you live in Bridgeview, right? I live in Bridgeview. Okay, yeah. what is Bridgeview? To me, Bridgeview is like Bawadi and Mansaf at Fatou. <laughs> no, it's, like it's a Palestine, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a big Arab American population, south side of Chicago. Mashallah, so they I, they like run that town, Bridgeview. Like yeah, the mayor I, is I always think, at Salat al has like the largest concentration of Palestinians like in, in the U.S. Or just Arabs like, in general, I feel. I mean, yeah, but it's second after, there's a lot of Arabs, but, but yeah. a lot of Arabs, but majority of them Palestinian. Maybe like Yemeni. Because Dearborn is a heavy Palestinian, right? They're more Lebanese, Lebanon. Yeah, Dearborn, Lebanese, and Iraqi. Lebanese and Iraqi, then South Lebanon. I mean, Dearborn is Yemenese. Okay. Hamtramck. Yeah, Hamtramck right next yeah. to Dearborn is all Yemenese. And Dearborn is more, has more Shia than where Bridgeview is more yeah, Sunni. Yeah, that's yeah, why they yeah. voted for Trump. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was gonna say it, bro. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. So, so so about yeah. So I really don't know. Like, I you know honestly, I just I, li- I live I live in Hickory Hills, which is the village next to Bridgeview. Yeah. So we call like, we just call all of it Bridgeview. Yeah. Oakland, Oakland. Justice Palo. I'd be like, yo, you from Bridgeview? They'd be yeah. like, no, I'm from Palos, bro. I'm like, man, I don't know. We just call all of it. Usually, I just have to say, if you guys know where Bridgeview's at, then you know where I'm at. Unless you're as far as like Orland. I'll, I'll get, Orland has its own culture separate from Bridgeview. Like, like Orland is like the newer, like, yuppie Arabs. Hey, man. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have any comment on this whole <laughs> section, bro. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's funny because you said the, the Jersey Shore cats are in Dearborn. So the Jersey Arabs aren't like Jersey Shore? Nah. Like Patterson, New Jersey? Yeah. That's, the, that's the hood. Like they're rough, bro. That's okay. like the streets. I Look, let me tell you something about the Jersey cats. Okay. I used to know this. I used to kick it out there, right? A lot of music stuff. This dude was actually Afghani. He wasn't Arab, but he lived in Patterson. He was like with all the Arab dudes. And this dude was straight up one day. You know, these dudes like used to push weight and do all that stuff, but he wanted to rob these dudes, right? But they were like non-Muslims. So in his mind, he thinks he's like a Sahabi, like stopping a caravan back in the day or something. <laughs> so he's like, he was he's about to pray Stakhara. So he's like, yo, I'm going to pray these two and I'm finna to rob these niggas, G. <laughs> you know, and that's, the, that's more the Jersey Arabs that I've been, that I've come across. Definitely not Jersey Shore. Dirt, Wait, he's going to pray Stakhara. He's going to pray Stakhara for the robbery to go well. You know what I mean? So whatever. That's, you know, Jersey's rough. It's definitely not 
Jersey's rough, bro. It's, it's not. It's and not then the Bay is the Bay Area, the California, the other like. I don't know, man. You, I'm gonna just make up generalizations <laughs> now about everybody. <laughs> I, well, we're just trying to get the audience like a like a. Anthropological I'm, I'm, trying to, like, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to endear myself to a new audience, not <laughs> make sure no Arabs listen to me. Anyway. They, they probably hate anyway. They're, they're probably listening to like Maher Zayn. <laughs> hey, good for them. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, so, so let's talk about your your, your music. Yeah. We, talked, we touched a little bit about it. You know, you're inspired by like listening to a lot of Coolio and Tupac. No, I didn't say I listened to a lot of Coolio. I just said I had memories of memories? the Coolio song. I'm not like a Coolio fan. I, well, I did listen you, to I feel like you only had one good song though. Yeah, Gangsta's Paradise. Yeah, no, I, remember the song. <laughs> I did retro actively listen to a lot of Tupac though and I did like you're talking about your upbringing and there wasn't really music in the house like I definitely did around my uncles even though they're like hypocritical like they'd find my CD and not a CD and like break it or something but then they're listening but I would like with my mom I'd warm her up we'd take road trips I'd buy a single I remember I bought a single Tupac old he had an old song like I bought it like 10 years too late or whatever but it's Brenda's Got a Baby it's a story about a girl who has a pregnancy because she was um, you know uh, raped and she throws the baby in the trash and whatever like it's an uplift you know it's a it's a story with meaning i'd play for her dear mama like I, you know i knew how to like push the right buttons and be like listen to tupac he's dope and have her kind of come around and i don't know if she still really really got it like my very first tour i hopped on tour i wasn't telling anybody i was kind of trying to keep the hip-hop thing like in the closet i was with bone thugs and harmony and tech nine from kc missouri oh, that's why I said one of my first shows was kc <laughs> but um um, you know, it's, so like when she found out about that, it was like, you know, the world turned upside down, but, um, eventually we talked about everything. She's like, yo, just get your degree. Like do whatever you want and get your degree. But, but now that she actually sees what I'm about, um, she's super proud. You know what I mean? And a lot of people maybe who are not in the hip hop world may have certain, um, a certain like impressions that they have about hip-hop from watching tv but it's just the medium bro it's just like books and documentaries or anything you can use it for good you can use it for bad it's just a medium of communication yeah so i first heard about you so we we have a mutual friend right and he'd always talk about you even though we had never met sure and so i remember one time we were getting together for brunch like oh college m might come through i'm like who's that it was like some rapper <laughs> and i was like okay in my head i was like uh, probably some other like you know hedonistic Muslim name rapper that yeah. you know doesn't like you know that's, that's sometimes your perception you just sure. you assume that of course and then the first time we met we we were at uh, ZZ's Cafe to get that Turkish food yeah and then I, I remember giving you a ride you know I gave you a lift actually Bridgeview that night and just talking to you, I was like, dang, this dude's like on the Dean. I was like, kind of like, it, I was surprised. I definitely prejudged you. I think that's what people, because when people may may see like, read the show notes and see that, hey, we Mad Mamluks interviewed like a Libyan American rapper yeah. or hip hop artist, whatever you want to call it. They might prejudge be like, all right, you know, sure. what the heck? you guys are just trying to be like, now this pop culture, sure, sure. you know, thing. But reality is like, as if people have listened this long, they know that you're like, a really deep individual and that and you're tuned into like Mashaik and all the ma sure. and know what's going on and talk to us a little bit about like so when you're on tour there's always we always hear about the fitna of being on yeah. tour <laughs> so like what's really going down there is that fitna for real or is uh, it just fake it is for real I, I definitely would not recommend for any individual to get involved in the music industry at all unless you're very concrete in your identity and what type of person you are I'm not gonna lie there is Fitting on the road. And you see, I mean, you see celebrities, right? Let's take non-Muslim celebrities. You see a lot who come out with a certain message 
And over time, like Kanye, like Kanye came out, his first album, I'm going to marry your daughter. And he's talking about struggle and God and this and that. You see like the direction kind of changes. It's easier to lose yourself. And there's Muslim artists too who've kind of progressively gotten went in a certain direction. And then there's other Muslim artists who've gotten stronger in their dean, like a brother And then Ali you got people somebody. like P. Diddy who make people religious. Like, I mean, Loon became Muslim. Shia became <laughs> a Jew. I mean, you know, you just, something happens. When Mace became a pastor. Um, yeah, know? so the, the lifestyle... Um, it, I, I will say this, man. The, the cool thing about music, and I've done a little acting, like little low-key, like a couple episodes of Empire, this and that, and I, I would never... Empire, pursue, that show on Fox? Yeah, yeah. You were on yeah. there? Just low key, like background stuff. <laughs> oh, I watch that show, dude. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the reason why music is an easier pursuit as a Muslim than an actor, other than the fact that a brown guy like me, like, keep it real, unless I'm creating the content, there's not a lot of roles. I'm going to be a Latino gangbanger or a terrorist. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, like, let's say that wasn't the case. At the end of the day, as an actor, I'm, I mean, as a, a musician, a recording artist, I'm still in charge of my content as an actor i'm not i remember there's a scene for empire that the lady directing that episode was uh claire huxtable's sister so the lady plays claire huxter her, her on the cosby show her sister was directing it and they want she wanted me to get more like uh physical with these like groupies in the scene like one her sitting in my lap and stuff and i wasn't really down with it and i'm a nobody on set so like i'm cut from the scene completely that's an, that's the life of an actor you don't have uh, power Especially over if you're that domain. To make it right. You're not gonna. You, you, I mean, if you're a nobody, even if you made it, Denzel Washington still plays the role that he plays. Yeah. Like he still can, like the script is made unless you're creating the script. Unless you're like a Tarantino, like Tarantino. He, yeah, creator, he's the right? director. Yeah, but yeah. I'm saying as an actor. So like at least in music, I can. I'm in charge of yeah. what I want to put on, and it's it's a tough line to cross, man. I, I, I I'm battle not gonna with lie, it a lot. I, I'm not gonna lie, dude. I, I, like it, like about five years ago, I had a beard that was like down in my my. my like down to my chest, dude. Yeah. And I was like, yo, uh, let me get a role being like one of those, you know, terrorists or something. I'll get paid, you know. But then I'm like, nah, how do I do it? You know, because yeah. they came up to me and asked me, like, hey, would you want to be in a movie? And yeah, I thought about it. I'm like, that, man, man, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna represent people that way, you know what I mean? I don't like, want no Muslims playing those roles. They better they better like hire some type of Guatemalan or somebody. No, the, and they have. And the, guy, and the guy told me, you know, when, yeah. when I was just talking to some people, I was on the online forums, and it's really a lot of people who are non-Muslims that play those Of course, roles. they got and, the one dude, there's a show guess, Fear of the Walking Dead. Yeah. He's always either the terrorist or the Latino and gang guess, banger. And guess who, who does it, though? <laughs> you know who's always playing the Arab roles? That one Mexican guy, right? No, not even Mexican, dude. It's Iranians that are playing the Arab roles. <laughs> and, you know, naturally, they, they love to portray the Arabs the bad way, you know what I mean? Because yeah. they, they got their own little beef they have. But, I mean, I've noticed that, and I noticed that to be really, really funny that that like you know that um all the people who are so-called terrorists and like you know muslims in, in in these roles are usually um you know non-arabs or non-muslims that are playing the role yeah and it's, it's crazy um but yeah so so oh yeah so you just go just going on tour like an average tour would be how long for you like, how long are you away from well for me not as long there's some people that do like like you know six months like tech nine tour is like almost 300 days out of the year yeah. probably for me it'd be like i i want to do longer tours coming up i have other obligations so um like i would tour in the uk for like a month or something you know what i mean um and i do a lot of spot dates before because i did it kind of different most artists when they're opening and they're starting their careers they start off just opening for other artists in their city i saw a lot of chicago artists now in the years that i've been gone like Chicago artists and hip hop are blowing up. I don't know how much y'all follow. Yeah, like Chance, Chance the Rapper. The rapper but, 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 but that, that's a lot due to like the whole trap music and the, and the drill music too. I mean, a lot of that stuff is the drills blowing up. But like Chance is the opposite of drill music. He oh, just yeah, got yeah. three Grammys. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But when I first came to Chicago and I was doing the music thing, 
artists weren't going nowhere. They were just here opening for whoever comes into town and they're just content like getting recognized and getting in the club free. You know what I mean? They're not doing it. I was like, I want to do the opposite. So I went on the road headlining my own shows. So they might be smaller. Maybe some cities is a thousand people. Maybe some cities is 50 people. You know what I mean? But I'm headlining. I'm, I'm in charge of my thing. And um, I never did that long tour because I never opened up for somebody because I didn't want to open up with an artist whose message is a little bit different than mine so it's a matter of principle for you that you didn't want to be on the same stage with somebody well it's also younger like uh, now i would take a lot of opportunities that i didn't didn't take before there's artists now who maybe their music's not the exact same as mine that were in talks with touring but as a person on a personal level i can get down with them they can get down with the cause they're not gonna all have 100 percent hadad music but at the same time that's not my lane like a lot of people are gonna be like yo why don't you make nasheed or this and that it's not my lane and there's as a Muslim, like I said, I had a bunch of best friends who all became Muslim eventually, alhamdulillah. So there's people who, I'm not the guy who's like going to take a regular Muslim and make him a hafiz. But there's something to be said for somebody who's relatable, that maybe someone who's either A, already Muslim and struggling with their identity can be more comfortable with the deen, like I was when I first heard most deaf and he's saying, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, and I'm a dumb kid, I'm in whatever, fifth or sixth grade, I'm like, oh, he's cool, you know what I'm saying? And there's something to be said, like dawah and bringing people into islam and just being like a human personal role that people can relate to so and for me know, i don't want to be i don't want to be in i don't want to preach to the choir yeah i'm not trying to be in those audiences and that's cool to do that too i'm not against anybody's doing that although personally i just think i just don't like corny music so if, if you're making an nasheed all power to you but if it's corny i'm still not gonna rock yeah with it. And, and, and we talk about it all the time and for me dude i, I i'll just be a, a keep it 100 percent here i feel like a lot of people listen to like she's just because they have a music addiction and they're trying to kick it and trying to replace it with something else you yeah. know what i mean like they'll be they'll be like yo you know what music's haram and i don't want to listen to music but then they'll listen to some dude who exactly sounds like music but he might use some kind of different you know yeah. synthesizer to make it sound like it's not sure. a beat and half their stuff are like covers beat. yeah and then, and then like, like no and then you know, hold on hold on the other thing is like it's the content too like you'll have some dude who just replaces hey yeah. you look fine in the dress to look you look fine in the hijab I've seen a you know song, I mean? like, seen a I song where they basically that. tell about all the stuff they want to do but they're saying like when we get to Jannah yeah you know and, smoke, and for me and, and, and I've seen people <laughs> do it and that's why I boycotted yeah. a lot of Islam for like 10 years dude yeah. I see groupies coming there and like I don't want to you know name drop but I know of like people who are so-called Muslim artists and they have like yeah, you know, groupies it. that come up That's and they never be like that. Yeah. and like, they'll be doing getting but, down. But I want to tell you something about the, the, the internet people that are saying music is haram. If you believe that, I 100% respect it and I have no problem. But don't be gung-ho telling whoever, Dean Squad or something that music's haram, but you watch even documentaries that have music in it. Like, yeah. you still mess with stuff that has music in it. Now, if you don't, and you're not hypocritical about it, alhamdulillah, more power to you. But don't go watching uh, Occupation 101 or White Helmets and like, oh, this is a great documentary. Guess what it has in it? It has music in it as well. Yeah. So just be consistent in your views to me. You know what? I think there's a key difference, though. It's kind of like, here's, the, here's how I look at it. Like, if you're going to mix, if you are the opinion that music is haram and you're mixing religion with it, I think it becomes more sensitive, right? Like, hey, you know what? Fine. That might document you, might have it. I can't control it. I'm watching. I can maybe fat, whatever. But when the minute and you put in like, and me, I don't have an opinion about it. Like, I don't know nobody, right? But what yeah. I'm trying to say is I feel like there's certain people who do it just because 
for two reasons. Either A, they failed in real mainstream music, like yeah. they couldn't get and famous. And it pays really well. Right? It's a financially yeah. very good market to be in. Right. And then so they failed there and they couldn't get in the mainstream. So like, okay, my backup is to be this. Like, and yeah. for example, there's a lot of church singers that you, that try to be mainstream. They, they get sure. started in the choir, in, 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 in the church and being singers there. And the other thing is, they're trying, they know that certain people, they don't want to listen to like regular music. So they have it. There's a niche, and they say, "Okay, yeah. you know what? I'm gonna talk about all this stuff that they want to hear, but I'm just gonna put like a little yeah. Islamic twist like on it." Like before, I and then there's a market for that. But also, there's people who do the opposite. There's not there's people who maybe got rejected to the mainstream and want to do that. But there's also people, and not just music, other entertainment, YouTube, whatever, who build up on this Muslim audience, and then once they have the numbers, they switch to something else and they have the numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've seen it happen a lot on YouTube. And, 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 and but I was going to say this, like, you know, I mean, Mahi know the guy I'm talking about, but, like, they were straight up having, like, I mean, <laughs> they were convincing women to do, like, muta with them after, like, concerts, dude. And, like, yeah. and I'm like, yo, this is crazy, yeah. man. Like, and I feel like it bothers me because you're tainting the religion. You know what I mean? You're using religion yeah. and there's no different than all these governments you talk about and all that political stuff you talk about, how governments are manipulating Islam. You're doing the yeah. same thing on a very basic level. That's why I think there's a big difference. I try to always make clear I'm not an Islamic rapper. I'm just a rapper who's Muslim and I don't want to claim to, because once you get in that world where you're saying I'm a Nasheed artist, that's a lot of pressure to be a certain type of person. And you're you know really a role model. People, this is why I kind of, I kind of respect like French Montana a little bit. Like he's an Arab or Moroccan as an identity, but he, he, he might even practice Ramadan and fast. You know what I mean? I'll he, tell you what, man. His, I, I got friends who like aren't Muslim. I don't keep up with French Montana that much, so I don't know. But I have friends who aren't Muslim, even some who are Muslim, and be like, "Yo, what is this? He's saying he's not smoking for thirty days, or he's with Khloe Kardashian, but he says they can't have relations yeah, yeah, for thirty right. days, yeah, or something yeah, yeah. like that." And to us, it's laughable. It's kind of funny, but it has an effect on other people. And they're like, "Yo, if French Montana can be disciplined about something, I want to look into this a no, little bit." No, but what I mean is like, look, he doesn't rep. That's just something he said at a personal interview. Like he's right. talking about himself. He's not put into his tune. Well, this is why this is why Dave Chappelle. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying, I can respect that. Yeah. You know, about him that hey, you know what? He's not using his religion to make money off it or politicize yeah. it. He's just doing. Hey, look, hey. I'm just doing what I do to make money. This is my career. This is what yeah. I do. He's transparent. Yeah. He and Dave is. Chappelle, when he first quit and he had that um, interview, it was like the, the dopest interview. And they're like, yo, you're a Muslim. Like, why don't you advertise it? Like, why don't you talk about being Muslim more? And he's like, he's like, Islam is perfect. Me as a Muslim, I'm not perfect. So I don't want people to see me with my flaws and associate it with Islam when I'm not a representation of it. So when you're, when you're saying that you're a Nasheed artist, you're kind of coming out. Um, and there's a lot of pressure to be that person in real life. And I know so there are some, there are, of course, and we, I don't want to make it a hate session. There are some Nasheed artists that are like straight nude in real life, mashallah. But no, I mean, it's, I'm it's, not going to lie. We, we have a dude on the show with him, like Omar Isa, and he's a solid straight up dude. Yeah, and, for like, sure. He gave up a lot of stuff and, and I respect what he does. Like he decided, hey, you know what? If I'm going to be the Nasheed artist, yeah. I'm going to do it 100% and I'm not really going to worry about for the sure, money, you for know, sure. all the stuff, you know. It's just, I'm, it's tough because even if you're making Nasheed, whatever music you're going to make, there's always an opportunity for your ego to balloon and you have to really check yourself. You have to be around people that are not yes men. My, my friends could give a dang how, you know, about my music. Like they support or whatever, but I'm just me to them. You know what I mean? From yeah. before. So it doesn't matter. Like I'll be, I'm the butt of the jokes a lot, very often. So you, you know, you have to just be grounded. Yeah. What, whatever your genre is. In the music industry, even if you're making Islamic music, it's very easy to get lost and to buy into your own hype. Yeah, so, you know what's cool, though, real quick, though, is that 
um for 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 hip hop though for a long time um there was a little bit of an Islamic influence, but the of problem course. was it was like a five percenter. It was like a nation type. Like I remember back then it was Rakim Allah. They yeah. would call people but I guess Allah. what? A lot of those five right. percenters became Sunni eventually. They Busta Rhymes is Sunni now, Rayquan, Ghostface. got exposed to Islam based on what they, like for example, when they hear Allah, they remember arm, leg, leg, arm, head. Yeah. Like they would think these things, you know? And, um, and, and for example, like there was Brand Nubian. I remember the first time I heard Arabic in a hip hop song, they had a song where they sampled the Adhan. It was like, you know, Allahu Akbar. It was, that's how it kicked off. And that was the beginning of the beat. And then the beat dropped. You heard the guy doing Adhan like three or four times. And then, um, they had the, they dropped the beat on it, you know? And then people got exposed and think, oh, so they kind of correlated like Islam to hip hop in a way. And then it became kind of like nation orientated. And then now it's kind of like back into where you, you're finding people who are just straight up just Sunni Muslims. Yeah. That are, that are, you have freeway. I mean, you got a like, lot. I mean, who, I mean yeah. oh, all those East Coast dudes, man. No. Yep. Oh, and they're all a Philly, New York, New Jersey. I mean, Islam was a style in Philly yeah. before. Like people had their pants high in up, Germantown, Salafi style, yep, long, long beards. Yep. You know I mean? Have you guys heard that song by Queen? Uh, it's Bohemian uh, Rhapsody. Rhapsody. Yeah, Rhapsody, yeah. yeah. Bismillah. Yeah, Bismillah. Yeah. He said it twice. Yeah. I, was like, I was like, oh, man, it's like Arabic, I know this. There's a lot of people <laughs> don't know. You know, Lauren Hill had a big hit on a, in a radio, but they edited the first part out. But if you listen to the uh, radio version, I mean, the album the version, EPA, the yeah. doo-wop song, like that thing. And it begins, she's like, don't forget about the Dean, the Sarata Mustaqeen. Yeah. Oh. You know, but the influence always been there. But Maheen been trying to talk for a minute, man. What oh, you got man. to say, bro? Yeah. No, I was just going to say, like, how you talking about how, you know, you, you know how your friends kept you in check. And I, I think I want to let the listeners know that Khaled made it seem like he was being difficult to schedule. He's actually really easy to schedule. And I had him drive out from like Devon which is like it was like an hour he, this dude and he had drives, dropped some dude off at O'Hare yeah. and then he picked up a coffee for me too usually we're supposed to get a guest a coffee he got me a coffee Oh man, that's sweet, so this dude. guy like you know I'm <laughs> the first alive. time for a guest man yeah no no ego for sure for I've sure. never gotten him coffee <laughs> ever <laughs> yeah. no but like I, I wanted to like, like t- I, I wanted to tie back to this whole fitna on tour thing so sure. we see man you can really try no, no, this is, I know, today, I know Maheen he, he wants to he wants to juice I'm like juicy like I, I mean, are you, are you having this like sign chicks cleavage and stuff, or is that going down, or or is it like you got a big tour bus? Like I think you have to answer it now. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it's fair. Uh, I, 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 I don't, I'm not. I haven't made it to this uh, to the level of the tour bus, but I do remember. Man, I do remember a time when I was really good in my dean. Alhamdulillah, my first tour with Tech Nine and Bone Thugs, and there was you know people around and stuff, and one of the girls. Asked me if I was gay because I was trying to like, you know, be uh, on the straight path in that moment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't really know what you. Want to say. Yeah, you can leave the details out, but I mean, look, I think what he's trying to find out. A lot of listeners are gonna are gonna listen to this. Yeah, because if Mad Mamouse went on tour, we probably all be like, messed yeah, up I mean, as hell. I think I'm not, I'm not famous, <laughs> right? The three of us. No, I mean, we'd be How to deal with everybody? Deal with fitna a different way, right? Yeah. And, and you know what the Quran says that one of the greatest fitna for 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 men is women. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And that can be a real. And it's not about being weak. It's the, it's your nature, dude. You're yeah. a man, and you know. I so think a lot, a lot about the hadith of the people that seven types of people that get shade. On Yom Qiyamah, one of them is a man who turns down the advances of like a woman with yeah. beauty mm-hmm. or wealth. I think about a lot who protects of his private parts. Yeah. Yeah. Like Sayyidina Yusuf. Sayyidina Yusuf, yeah, yeah. Salam. So like, alhamdulillah, none of us look like that dude because it would be yeah. over for I'd us. I'd be in trouble, bro. Yeah, oh, you know what I mean? But um, 
you, you know one um you know kind of tying his question is um uh, do you know the Abdullah brothers? Yeah, the two football players. Yeah. yeah, and so one time uh you know they go to mosques and and they sure. talk and then one of the guys asks them it's just like hey you know you guys win a big game um and then there's one year where uh they they want a big playoff game right and he's just like you know he's like everyone goes home and party he's like yeah. what do you do he all he did was he read the question he said go home put it down yeah. and that was that yeah, exactly you, Let's you just know one of the that. most humbling people I've met as a Muslim was uh, I remember I was in New York I was in Queens with over to my family and uh, Hakeem Olajuwon was there in town for a game okay so we were praying Juma. okay the, the khatib was making his khutbah and uh, my little nephew was telling in the background, he was like, hey, uh, you know, he was like seven or eight. And he's like, yo, Hakeem Olajuwon is behind me. And I'm like, yo, this guy, bro, he's a bunch of black people, tall black guy. He thinks Hakeem Olajuwon, you know, whatever, dude. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? So the khatib just said, you know, he says, Iqam Salah, you know. And so, like, I get up and I look to the left. This big, tall black dude. I'm like, what? I'm like, yo, it's Hakeem Olajuwon, bro. I'm like, oh, my God. And then so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be cool, you know, just hey, it's time to pray, you know. And then what happens is right when the salah gets done, Everyone looks, yo, Hakeem, Hakeem, whatever. And all of a sudden, he's just like, yo, he's like, everybody just stop. He's like, we're in the house of Allah. He's like, Allah should be, you know, praised. You know, don't, don't, don't try to praise me in the house of Allah. Next thing, you know, this guy was like, Hakeem, your shoes. And he gave him the shoes and he just walks out. And I'm saying the amount of hum, like humbleness and humility that person has, yeah. man, because, you know, and who, he had that who, effect, who, who, man, yeah. on others. Like, he, wasn't just in bad environments. Their second championship, you know, the first thing you do when you win an NBA championship, what are they doing? They're popping champagne, right? Spraying yeah. on it. And that's the only championship in history that I know of where they didn't pop champagne yeah, out of respect really. for him and his beliefs. And it's not like he told them nobody do it, but it's just the respect that they have yeah. for him. He commanded that. Like, he was vocal about him being a Muslim, like not eating yeah. pork. And like, I mean, fasting. He was fasting, fasting during the playoffs, playing. one of those championships. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Robinson, right? Yeah, uh, against Robinson, where they uh, announced the MVP, he messed him up, dude. Robinson oh, had to yeah. take a seat. Um, you, you know, know another you know guy. People don't know either, though. Um, BJ Armstrong was a Muslim. Really? And, yeah, and, and and he um ended up not popping bottles in the Bulls on the nineteen ninety playoff. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. I never heard that. I'll tell you something about Hakeem, man. When I was a kid, I was an NBA stan, right? Like obsessed with basketball, and um. I used to beg my dad a lot of how I'd like to get a jersey. I want a jersey. And he used to say, no, like we don't pay, we don't wear people's names on our clothes. Like we don't idol worship. You know what I mean? And eventually like we got into Hakeem, this and that. So eventually he let us buy jerseys, me and my brother. I got Hakeem Olajuwon. I made my brother get Mahmoud Abdurouf. I wanted the Hakeem one. Oh. <laughs> but, um, you know, my first jerseys that I ever owned, thanks to my dad, was Hakeem and uh, Mahmoud Abdurouf, bro. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Mahmoud was, was yeah. known though, man. And it's, he was it's a monster, bro. About this a beast. Because he was the Sean. Colin before Colin. Right. Like, he didn't want to stand yeah. up for... Yo, the there's this documentary, and it's nowhere online. It's called... Uh, it's about Mahmoud Arif. It's called The Don's Early Light, and it is phenomenal. I can't find it. I watched it, and he's so eloquent, such nude when he speaks, and he broke it down very eloquently, and he's like, it's not about anti-America, this and that, but it's like, me as a Muslim, I don't prescribe to any entity of anything other than Allah. P- at the end of the day, though, period. Right now, if you were to say that, hey, that is material support of terrorism, sir. You yeah, come of with course. Us. You know what I mean? Like, and it's crazy how the things change, you know? But uh, I'm sorry, Mahin, you're going to say something. I was just like, Mahmoud, if you listen to this podcast, hit us up, man. We've got to get you on. He's actually pretty pretty big. Um, I follow him on Instagram. He's, he's pretty no cool. No doubt. Yeah, there's a former but basketball you know player, Ethan Thomas, who has a cool podcast, and Mahmoud Abdurouf is his next people, Where's he living? In Bay Area, right? You know, I don't know. Ian Thomas know. played at Syracuse. I just remember him from college. So uh, you, you got you got a little bit of knowledge on you. Okay. No, you must because you, you're a UK. You must be a UK fan. 
Wildcats. I mean, it's you know, you're from Lexington, uh, right? I, was, I don't even have a choice in the matter. I was indoctrinated <laughs> into that, man. It's like de- it's the dean of Kentucky. I no, think, because man. when y'all beat Syracuse in the '96 final, Eaton Thomas played on that team. But when they had no, John no, no, Wells, no, 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 no. Eaton Thomas actually beat us in the early, like 2002 or something, in the second round. I remember I was salty, bro. Oh, Eaton, he was on the team. He was Carmelo? a little bit later. A little bit before okay. uh, Carmelo, maybe but, 2000, but you, right. 2001. But the 96 like final was when you guys had that dream team, yeah, yeah. like Tony Delk. Yeah, yeah, one of many dream teams. Exactly. Yeah, because Rick Patino <laughs> ran, ran it good. But, Kyle, before we wrap up, we, we got to go pray Mugrib. Can we hear some freestyle from you? Oh, man. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, I didn't think about you, you coming. Should I do some, like, just a verse? Uh, what do you guys can't take, take our freedom or like or something, 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 bars, maybe something about from Libya like something problem. about Libya well, okay. I, heard, I heard can't take our freedom right. you could just drop whatever you whatever just drop I'll do uh, let me do two okay. okay so the audience so like I'll do I'll do the first verse of can't take our freedom then right. I'll do okay. another one that's just like some flex and rhyme stuff in the darkest out when the world has turned away and no one's watching when the sky has turned to gray and you have no options when your voice is illegal only choice for the people is to stand up proudly in the face of death it ain't a waste of breath when you speak up loudly on behalf of the kids in the street with no pot to pissing living on their own cause they pops is missing don't know if he's dead or if he's locked in prison disappeared they consider him the opposition now I'm having visions and dreams I shouldn't see like who would be this close now I couldn't be but if the people in Egypt and Tunis could do this society their fate then why wouldn't we more than 40 years he done brought the nation under occupation we cannot be waiting we gonna stop debating when one of us dies 10 jumping line ready to box with satan so that's first verse of can't take our freedom that's off your that's off your song that you released for yeah can't take our freedom that's a big one about libya that was one that was like crazy when it came out youtube tweeted it out like millions of views and then youtube deleted it mm-hmm. um and it took us a long time to get it back up and then uh just on some hip-hop like yeah flex stuff sure let's do it I'll get some water real Do quick. some battle rap, you know, like some calling some people out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. <clears throat> I'm better than a veteran, said I'm raising the stakes. I ain't settling for letterman, said I'm gonna be great. I ain't never been with better friends, heading to see my fed. I got excedrin and fetterman's bed. I'm staying away. So I sever all endeavors, told me whether I kill. Got celebrity skill, but I can never be real living in Beverly Hills. So I fly away and let my feathers settle tight right wherever I feel. I'm West Coast born, dirty South raised, East Coast flow with a Midwest glaze. These flow show that the kit just blaze. He's so cold that the bigs must praise. Why Kyler don't go out? Oh, he's so cheap. No, he low key, he only go see. All the people that he used to know before he started spinning cold like when it snow below three. The artist in me wanna go hard to a father degree like the carters and the martyrs you see you started to be one that would hardly agree but arguably and another rapper smarter than me so i do what i do and it's true that it's priceless you and your crew need to do something like this who would have knew that this dude was the nicest grew from a fool to a tool for the righteous might just break it down i'm ahead of the competitors i'll take the crown i'm a predator you edible don't make a sound incredible to editors so hate me now never mind what haters say they fade away a greater day is overdue i told you dude they mad because i made a play grow up listening to pop won't kid you that but i love new york like midget mac sort of like nice trying to bridge you cat sort of like not trying to bridge the gap <laughs> built my team with the bridge you cats best on the scene and i'm liking it we're the best that you've seen ain't no fighting it if you mess with my team and you might get lit i go to jail for my dogs like michael vick yeah, <laughs> nice, i had to stutter for a little bit when i when the bridge you line came yeah up, just because so, of Mahin. real quick so like how can people find out more about your work yeah and- so the name now is km which is k-a-y-e-m k-a-y-e-m so it used to be Khalid m was your stage it was name. Khalid m, yeah and i became k is that kind of the initial first yeah k? so like i had some mentors in the game a long time ago who always told me you can't go by Khalid you gotta stop it's boxing you in DJ Khalid is getting bigger every time we'd have meetings with a company or Def Jam or Spotify or something it's like they're expecting something different but I never I felt so invested in that name 
and I didn't want to change it. Now it's like I'm starting from scratch. The momentum doesn't matter anymore. And it's liberating for me. After getting off all the FBI stuff, the harassment stuff, it's a new start. I'm not the type of person that can go by a fake name, like young so-and-so, little this and that. So the only thing that my friends actually call me is KM, which is the letters K-M. Uh, but I just spelled it out because I'm not really trying to compete with Kilometer for search engine optimization. <laughs> you know, so it's KM, which is like a sausage company or something, but I don't care. I'll roll with it. So all my social media is This Is KM. Twitter at This Is KM. Um, you know, Facebook, Instagram, and my YouTube is youtube.com slash KM. SoundCloud, This Is KM. A lot of stuff that I have now is like older, but I have a lot of new stuff coming out after Ramadan. I've been working. I've been, I have a lot of music videos, everything in the vault. I'm going to release Sing Freedom soon, inshallah, publicly, which was a documentary that was filmed about my first trip to Libya, a nine-person film crew captured like meeting my family for the first time or when my where my dad hid out in the mountains. He carved his name and date in the side of the mountain. Oh, wow. We got that. Um, so a lot of content after Ramadan, um, inshallah. So keep a lookout. This sure. is KM. Yeah, when for, when that documentary drops, we'll definitely let our listeners know. We definitely will share that nice. stuff on our, on, on our Facebook page. So, um, you know, and your and your music is. Do you have like? Do you have CDs they can buy? Are you on iTunes or like? No, I'm, I've, I took off most of my stuff off Spotify except for some. There's like some UK album that posted two of my songs. I wanted to take everything off and rebrand. Uh, so the SoundCloud, like SoundCloud.com/slash uh, this is KM, or on YouTube, YouTube.com/slash KM is music. It's a lot of the stuff I've already released, and then all the new stuff is gonna come out. So right now, that's all free then. Everything free, yeah. So how are you making a living? I should. Well, nobody makes money from CDs anymore. You make movie. You make money from shows. From shows. Shows is where you get paid in merchandise. Okay. So shows and merchandise. So once I drop the new merchandise, you know what I'm saying? You can support a brother (laughs) if you like the message. But uh, yeah, shows and merch, man. I'm not even worried. I mean, Chance hasn't sold hasn't sold a single album. You know, he got three Grammys. He's only released his music on streaming. You can't even buy a physical Chance the Rapper album if you wanted to. See, didn't realize. Nobody buys CDs no more, man. Yeah, I've been CDs since like 1999. No, but like iTunes, right? They still you can still buy them on. Yeah, iTunes. you can make money from Spotify. Not if you if you're like getting played in the millions and stuff, you can make some money off Spotify. It's not as much, but that's nice. not that's like icing on a cake. Nobody's trying to make a financial career off iTunes and Spotify. Okay. You know, they just want more people to know who they are, so more people can come. It's to all shows. about networking, like yeah, much. just shows. Like yeah. it's all about shows. All right, man. All right, Jazakallah Khair again for coming through, yeah, man. Yeah, um, I, I want to close this podcast out. You know, I want to thank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is your job, man. You're Tom Brady. <laughs> you retired, bro. You like that Drew Bledsoe? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I want to thank Mogul for coming back. It's, it's, it's been a minute, but uh, appreciate yeah. you coming through and offering some insights and that some of us some things that maybe Morton and I couldn't offer. But uh, if our listeners out there, if you have any questions or comments, you can. Email us at themadmumlukes at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. We're on Instagram at themadmumlukes. You can also check us out on iTunes, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. And we're on Podcast Addict for you Android folks. So for our special guest, the artist known as KM, formerly known as Khaled M, and my co-host Mort and Moga. This is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mum Luke. Assalamu alaikum. Bruh, <laughs> 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 <laughs>
people in Egypt and Tunis could do this Decide their fate, then why wouldn't we? More than 40 years, he done brought the nation under occupation We cannot be waiting, we gon' stop debating When one of us dies, ten jumping line ready to pop some Satan You can't take our freedom or take our soul Take our freedom or take our soul You are not the one that's in control You are not the one that's in control La ilaha is the law No powers greater than God Go ahead and devise your plans At the end of the day, you are just a man When the regime just seems so unstoppable When freedom feels like it's impossible The people rise and overcome every obstacle You can't take our freedom or take our soul Take our freedom or take our soul You are not the one that's in control You are not the one that's in control La ilaha is the law No powers greater than God Go ahead and devise your plans At the end of the day you are just a man Just a man